Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. I'm Sam, and with me today, I have Sam. <laughs> hey, Sam. <laughs> so I have Mr. Sam Hancock. Can you, um, can you tell the audience sort of a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Thanks for putting me on the spot. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I suppose first and foremost... At the core of everything I do is race driving. I've been able to earn my living as a as a as a race driver for you know long time now, really. But that means so many different things to so many different people. And in some ways, that's coaching. And in some ways, it's proper racing professionally for a team. And in some ways, that's uh, because you're a race driver, you get to do some filming, some presenting. You name it. It's uh, any ask any race driver out there that considers themselves a professional. The way in which they actually earn their money <laughs> is often from loads of different types of in- income streams. But I'm getting a little older and greyer these days. So <laughs> the, the the main part of that story, which maybe we'll, we'll we'll revisit, is kind of behind me, and I'm into sort of stage two of my career, I suppose, which has through a weird turn of events ended up completely focused on the classic and historic car scene, specifically historic racing. And I still do race professionally. I still do driver coach professionally, but I also do a lot of sourcing and selling of classic race cars, mainly for a lot of my clients who are amateurs who do this for a hobby, but sometimes they take it really seriously, which is lovely. And they often appreciate having, you know, a pro who's their kind of go-to race guy and you don't only coach them. The relationship normally starts with that, but you end up getting involved with a lot of advice, a lot of consultancy, just assisting really with all of their car stuff. And of course, in my, in my case, it makes sense that that is 
race car stuff. So advising what events to do, helping organize that, the entries, helping get the right car that often acts as the golden Mm. key to get into the right grid at the right event. And of course, making sure that they're up to the job of driving it. So it's really, it's a really mixed bag. And, um, yeah, I suppose I should also have just come back from two or three, two or three days commentating for Eurosport at Le Mans. So media work like that as well, but very much linked to cars and racing. Yeah, because I, I, we had you scheduled in for a little bit and then I was watching the some of the race yesterday and I was watching it on the app and then I switched over to Eurosport and I was like, oh, oh. Sam, I've heard you doing this before, but I kind of forgot. So you've just been commentating at the Le Mans, Le Mans 24 hours, um, providing some insights and juicy stories for the the listeners. It's a a weird role. It's something that I got into. My last Le Mans was 2012 for Jota in an LMP2 car. And that was my, God, I've lost track. Eighth Le Mans? Seventh Le Mans? Can't remember. And it was very odd for a couple of years thereafter. I, I really got complacent, got very used to the fact that, yeah, every June I'm racing at Le Mans, yeah. sort of what I do. And it was really tough when the first June came around and I, I wasn't racing at Le Mans anymore. And it's like, whoa, okay, what am I going to do? And I'd all, I'd always sort of had a foot in with the TV guys down there. In fact, my first ever visit to the 24 hours of Le Mans started, I've, I've just going down as a race fan, but also as a sort of young aspiring racer that was just obsessed with the event and I'd never been. And I I sort of wanted to understand what a sports car career might look like. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anyone involved, but I did know somebody involved on the TV side of things and I didn't have a ticket. And they said, well, look, you know, if you want, we need a runner. Do you want to do you want to be a runner for us? And, and then, you know, obviously you've got a ticket, but it also means you'll be getting in and out of the pit lane. So my job for the whole of the 24 hours was legging it between the TV compound or the, the commentary booths, which at that time was opposite the pits on the other side of the yeah. start finish straight top floor of however many stories that big ACO building is. And my job was to go and find drivers for interviews and drag them up there and then take them back and, and back and forth, um, which was, Brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Because from not knowing how I was going to get in the gate and driving down on my own with a tent and a backpack (laughs) and thinking, I know I'll blag this. I just don't know how yet. (laughs) And uh, never did I imagine. And actually I couldn't have been more on the inside, which was an awesome way to experience it. Because back then, of course, there weren't any of the pit lane restrictions that you have now. There, there wasn't a rule that said everyone in pit lane had to wear a fire suit. Oh, yeah. There wasn't a rule that said the only people allowed over the line, which designates the, the front opening of the pit garages, you know, you can only have four team members go beyond that line to service the car or whatever. None of that existed. So there were hundreds of people moseying up and down the pit lane at will probably less than 5% of them actual team personnel with a real job to do. They were just billies like me, just having a great time and all gathering around Audi when we sensed that they were getting <laughs> gearing up for a pit stop. And they used to have to get a long rope and literally just walk out in front of us and pull the rope tight and just kind of gather us all back <laughs> like, like a herd of cattle or something. And, um, and hold us back until the car had left the pit box. And of course, at that time, there wasn't even the rule about no wheel spin for the drivers leaving the pit box and all this stuff. So 
cars were coming in at like massive speed, quick pit stop. Like you're dicing with death as a spectator yeah. out of place, but, but it was sort of accepted. And it's only now you look back and think, whoa, that was madness. How was that ever tolerated? But I'm really pleased it was. Yeah, that is mad. That is, I didn't realise, well, obviously that was the case at one point in time, but I never really thought how long ago or not long ago that would be and these things would change. Yeah. Like no wheel spin, is that when they're up on the jacks or so just the, not allowed to do a burnout out of the pit box? Yeah, so I mean, uh, the no wheel spin rule was definitely in place when I was racing. Um, so, you know, I was doing Le Mans from about 2000 and on and off from about 2000 and, or I can't remember, 2002 maybe, 2003, I forget now, up to 2012. And I'm pretty sure it didn't exist at the beginning. So somewhere in the midst of that period, these kind of rules that, that by the way, make total sense. I mean, these are really <laughs> obvious, p- totally reasonable safety rules. And as much as I miss clouds of tyre smoke yeah. and big, you know, dark lines being laid down as the cars exit the pits, at the same time, you know, you've got fuel churns there. You've got a lot of people that are innocently, you know, minding their own business, doing their job. And the idea of wiping them out just because you don't quite get your arm for the yeah. opposite lock on. <laughs> so you just pick up a big tank slapper or something on the way out, which by the way, I have done. Um, well, out of the pit box. Yeah, I didn't lose <laughs> it, but I've definitely, my first year in sports cars was in an awesome car still to this day. One of, one of the best I've raced, which was a open top Lola prototype, but with a V8 Roush engine with just buckets of torque. Mm. And it was almost impossible to pull away in that thing without lighting up the rears. Adding new tires that are yet to be bedded in, maybe a slippery pit apron, maybe a concrete apron that doesn't really have the sort of traction that you get on, on tarmac. And you use an armful of oppo in both directions <laughs> normally just pulling out of the box the other thing is of course you don't want to stall so the safer the yeah. safer way to do it is just use just loads of revs yeah. and light it up and um i did once get in trouble with erwin kramer who was my team boss you know fantastic looking back at that sadly he's not with us anymore but yeah i now have such a richer understanding of sports car racing history the idea that Okay, at the end of its life, after the the glory days, perhaps. But I drove for Kramer Racing back in the day. That that, that was cool. cool. And at the time, I knew it was special, but I didn't realise how special. Yeah, he once pulled me into the office the day after the race in in the workshop in Cologne. He was like, "Look, you can't leave the pit box like that." <laughs> but his problem wasn't safety related. I love the fact he's such a competitor. His problem was that it wasn't quick. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, he's yeah. like you could be a tenth or two quicker out of the box if you just maintain traction. Uh, and also he was worried about, you know, wear and tear on the components. And yeah, so, yeah. So, anyway, <laughs> whatever. God, I've gone straight into a red herring there. Anyway, what was your question? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Well, I, I don't know. I don't really know. We were sort of lending back to being, to doing some commentating. Um, but actually one of the things I noticed from watching a bit this year is the, like the Toyota leaving the pit box is just under electric. Yeah. Awesome. And it is unbelievable. Yeah. The propulsion that they get, it's like a slingshot. I don't really know how they, how they kind of wind it up for such instant acceleration, but it's awesome. And, and actually, yes, 
I miss, you know, with rose tinted spectacles on, I suppose I miss the sound of a whatever 12 cylinder engine at full revs and the driver dumping the clutch and lighting up the tires. But there's something really special about seeing, you know, Toyota's leaving on electric power only at that kind of speed. Yeah. So efficient. And it's so, such a shock. You can watch it a hundred times. Every time you see it, particularly from the onboard camera, looking back at the driver's okay. head, because it just thrusts their helmet hard back into the headrest with a really aggressive jolt. I just think that's great. And then, and then obviously the engine kicks in at whatever it is, 50 miles an hour or something yeah, and off they go. It's yeah. I think there's for me there's that blend, isn't it? Is of unbelievable tech, and if the unbelievable tech is clearly more effective than everything else, I I can sort of get behind it. Yeah. If you're just a spectator on the side and things are going faster and faster, whatever. But like you need you need a bit of sound if you're spectating. But just as a an pure spectacle to watch that, I was I was a bit like, oh whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really special. I mean the sound thing. It's going to be a difficult one as we move inexorably towards electric power in, across all, all, you know, all automotive. But there's, I struggle a bit with Formula E because there's just no sound. And yeah. when they were racing in London at the Battersea Park Grand Prix, I, went, I, I did go and I've got to be honest, I, I really struggled with that. Just, just the race fan in me found that quite hard to, to wrap my head around. At Le Mans, we obviously have had opportunities to get used to quiet cars when Audi introduced the diesel engine at the time diesel had a very different image and it's pretty much thanks to programs like that 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 whole image and messaging has been able to evolve but it was so quiet and a lot of the I remember a lot of the press race you know hardened race fans in the press people in the panel were like oh god I mean how depressing to have such a quiet car but actually it was really exciting because you had variety and it's a bit like having the goodie and the baddie in a, yeah. you know, in a sort of Superman movie or something. It just created this variety. And the first time you heard a diesel powered Audi go by you at full chat on, on the straight or something, all you heard was the wind. And that was mm. amazing. And then something comes by with a V8 roar and then something with a V10 and, and, and just that variety that you get at Le Mans and you still get at Le Mans makes it, really special and interestingly it always used to be i think the gt cars that didn't have the greatest sounding engines they always had a pretty loud bellow which let me tell you after a few hours in pit lane starts to ricochet off the walls and just kind of blow your brains apart it's not the nicest sound in the world particularly the older rsrs from a few years ago but now i reckon the rsr has by far the best sound it's just stunning oh stunning flat six Boxer 4.2, naturally aspirated. The new one. Because it's It's it's, side pipes now. It's side pipes, and you get sort of like three each side. Yeah, you do. I agree. It's not as good as the the previous iteration, which had the pipes out the back. That was sensational. I mean, that, in terms of exhaust noise, that's got to be right up there, particularly in terms of current generation race cars. It's got to be up there with the best of the best. But I think. It's it's not as good now with the side pipes, but we were listening to a lot of onboard while commentating, mm. obviously for twenty four hours. And certainly in terms of the driver's experience, you know, <laughs> that 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 onboard noise in the Porsche was just something else. It was just magic. And it sounds interestingly so understressed by stark contrast to the Ferrari right. and also to other categories. I mean the V eights and LMP two just sound like they're ready to explode. All the time, you know, they are just 
absolutely singing, but it's, I mean, it's kind of great. It's a very aggressive, very intense noise, but I mean, as a driver over the years, especially if you've raced at Le Mans a few times in different cars, you definitely get a sense, just a gut feeling of, you know, have you found yourself, have you found your way into a seat this year, which is actually likely to get to the flag or not? And you just kind of know, you get a feeling of the resonance of an engine, you get a feeling from the sound, from the vibration, and you just, you just know roughly what your chances are. <laughs> um, but interestingly, those Gibson V8s in P2, well, actually, and the, the Gibson in the Rebellion as well in LMP1, they did a great job. They're reliable now, you know, yeah. they, they get to the end and man alive, are they quick, those things. The P2s these days doing kind of 120, I think Paul Dresser did a one, sorry, a three minute 24 something in quality. Well, it's not, you don't have to go back that far to see that that was the pace of uh, a works was, prototype in LMP1. What's an LMP1? What's current? Current LMP1. Records, so sort of- yeah, we all got overexcited because we thought that in the new Hyperpole qualifying session this year, which is a new creation that the ACO came up with to try to put a bit more emphasis and excitement around qualifying, which I think didn't need that yeah. tweak, actually. I've always loved qualifying because they have these long... They've Traditionally, Wednesday and Thursday nights are official practice, but also qualifying, so all the lap times count towards the grid. And... That included dusk sessions that extended into the night. And as that happened, as you go into dusk, the temperatures drop and that's better for the engines. They breathe a little more easily. They produce a little more horsepower. And with each passing lap of the session, the circuit rubbers up more yeah. and more and more. And it gets thinner, stuff like that. Yeah. So the lap times got quicker and quicker. And there used to be happy hour at the start of the second session on, say, a Wednesday or a Thursday evening at, I guess it was, uh, well, we're in the middle of, traditionally, you're in the middle of summer in June, and the happy hour, I think, was sort of, you know, 9pm or 8pm or something like that. Basically, before it got mm. too dark to see properly, and good drivers will always be able to lap quickly in the dark, but until the lights became as phenomenal as they are today, there was a, a drop-off in raw pace as, when real darkness set in. You don't really see that now because obviously the drivers are brilliant, but also the laser light technology on all the cars throughout the field is insane. Yeah. Um, so it tends to be better. But this year they had Hyperpole. It was a daytime qualifying session for the fastest six in each class from the previous okay. day's practice. Yeah. And so it's like a shootout. And the pole sitters got a world championship point. So there was a lot of attention on it. And it was good because you got you know, 24 cars on track instead of 59, much less traffic, much less chance of interruption on those quality attempts. And uh, Kamui Kobayashi in the Toyota nearly broke his all-time lap record from 2017. So what, what was that? It was a three, I should, or something? I should know because I, I had great opportunity to commentate on the onboard, um, which flies around YouTube actually quite a lot. <laughs> if anyone wants to watch his lap, uh, it's definitely worth checking out because it remains the fastest lap of Le Mans, a three fourteen point seven, I think, and it's just phenomenal how they achieve that lap time. You watch, you look at the direction change in the Porsche curves, you look at the entry speed that they carry. It's just it absolutely blows your mind when you see it. But what was amazing is in in this year's Hyperpole, he looked set to break it. All the conditions were favourable to break the record. 
and he went out for a run and he was three tenths up in the first sector. He was six tenths up in the second sector and we were all getting very excited. And then the race director comes on to the sort of radio thing that everybody hears saying, I'm cancelling this lap because he exceeded track limits at Terre Rouge. This lap won't count. And so obviously he backed out of it, which is a real letdown actually, because I reckon he'd have taken a good second off of it. And this is the last year of LMP1 as we know as it. they are, yeah. Next year... There's a whole new concept for the leading category at Le Mans and in Le Mans series and so on called Hypercar. Very complicated new set of rules, but it looks to have a lot of support from manufacturers. So that's good. But I have loved this LMP1 era that we've lived through with these extraordinary cars that to me look like they're formed in outer space and yeah. dropped down for our enjoyment by aliens. You know, they're just awesome, exotic, outrageous, you know, technical development and just phenomenal speeds. They're just, I'm sad to see it go a little bit actually, because I, I think they're very special. I have this argument so many times with people. <laughs> I love them. A lot of people hate them because they don't have anything to do with real road cars, but I, I'm into I it. I go back and forth on it because I think as a, a bit of kit, they are unreal. And if you said to me, you could drive a, I don't know, GT pro car or an LMP one car. It's no competition. I'd have it's got to be LMP1 because it's just the most batshit. Like, yeah, yeah, that's the yeah, one you've got to yeah. drive. Obviously, I would yeah. love to drive a GTE Pro car as well, but and then they went, especially when Porsche did the, the tribute. Oh, wow, that was and then there's like else. we're just going to remove some of the limits. I only have one issue with the, the, the tribute thing that they did, which for anyone listening that doesn't know, basically, they 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 took their LMP1 car when that race program had finished and they just got rid of all the things that held that pegged back its speed but that were forced upon them by the regulations of you know Le Mans series racing at Le Mans and so on and they just had this unfettered uninhibited car and they went around the world to famous circuits to see what lap time they could do the problem with that is they went and demolished for example the Nürburgring lap record which has been in place with Stefan Beloff since whatever year it was and that was so special, his record. And, you know, it was a Rothmans Porsche 962. And that was set with regulations in place. That car was built around racing rules. It feels like a real record. And as cool as it is, and it is cool to see this wild technical creation go around the world to some of the most famous circuits and just be led off its leash to do unbelievable things. There's something... I struggle with, you know, if we were getting the same thing happening with a Formula One car and if we had had the same thing happening, say with a Group yeah. C car or whatever, then I suppose it starts to make sense and you end up with this kind of wild, unofficial tally of just out and out, you know, crazy race cars. I think, I get what you're saying. And like, it didn't happen in a race. So it's not like a race car record. We know that. It's also not a road car record. because It's not a road car. But I I can't watch that lap around the Nurburgring and not go fair play. Like that's unbelievable. Like <laughs> yeah. Just just a whole another level. Like there's yeah. no way the speed is ridiculous. Maybe some way, but I don't think if you said to the current F1 crowd, you can take your F1 car around the Nurburgring. Someone would probably do it. Well, they would. I mean, they would do it. Uh, they'd have to they'd have to adjust the way the car works. I don't think a circuit as bumpy as that is so suitable for an F1 car. But then again, 
for P1 Porsche can do it, why can't a Formula yeah. 1 car? I'd, I mean, I'd love to see it. It's not like you look at an LMP1 car and go like, oh yeah, that's built for off-roading. True. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 that's a good point. No, I, I hear you. It's just, the, 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 thing that, the thing that just I find extraordinary is the speed that they can carry through the high speed. Yeah. If you go onto YouTube and you look for the onboard lap from posted by Toyota from the Hyperpole qualifying at this year's Le Mans, they are flat and upshifting in corners on the circuit where, you know, when I was in LMP1 a few years ago, we were braking and downshifting. And that's wild to me. I understand that, you know, it's a smaller lift than it was, or maybe that's nearly flat yeah. now and forth. But to be flat and upshifting on the apex, what? Yeah. Are you serious? Like the last left-hander at uh, karting, which is the end of the Porsche curves, that's a really hard off-camber corner that the circuit just falls away to the to the sort of right-hand side and do whatever you want to do, you're going to lose front-end grip. It's just going to plough with understeer as the track drops away after the apex. So it was always a bit of a lift, you know, maybe even a bit of left foot break or something. You watch that lap. He's literally pulling, I think in fifth into sixth on the apex. Yeah. Insane. It's, it's so difficult to translate that because you've driven incredibly fast, fast cars at Le Mans and you know what it feels like to do whatever, 150 through X corner or whatever. Whereas for just a layman sitting on the side, you're like, that looks fast, but like it just goes into the crazy. It's, it's yeah. just in, Oh yeah, that's mad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, I always think the fun thing about 24 hours of Le Mans is when you see, you know, you look at the GT cars, which are seriously exotic versions of the most exotic road yeah. cars. And they're quick, by the way, a GT car now is doing lap times that prototype, you know, LMP two prototypes were doing not very long ago. You know, I think, um, Alex Lynn's fastest lap for Aston Martin was a three minute 50. Well, I remember qualifying on provisional pole in LMP2 a few years ago, probably 2005 or something like that on a 348. Well, that's a, that's basically a GT class time now. So they are generating ridiculous amounts of downforce and they have a lot of power, but then the, the LMP car, LMP1 cars romp past them like they're standing still. Yeah. And it just puts the whole thing into a perspective that, as you rightly say, is just really hard to wrap your head around. It's just ridiculous. It's just mad. Yeah, because there was, well, I don't know whether it must have been like a couple of years ago, you had that overlap of LMP2 and GTE where they're like, they're not that different in speed. Like down a straight, they're kind of similar. Which was really hard at the time, by the way, because a lot of that is regulation induced. Um, And basically what they did is they pegged back the top speed of the LMP2s with air restrictors. And that made it really hard for the P2s to get past. In fact, the GTs were significantly quicker for one season down the straights. Yeah. So then it forced all the LMP2 drivers to have to get by in the braking zone. But you're having to come from a, a little bit back. So you didn't have the punch. You didn't have the power to really get them out of the corner. You could carry momentum and get alongside. But then the GT car would generally yeah. pull back ahead then you had to make a late lunge on the brakes and it led to a lot of comings together and was r- frankly really, really annoying. Yeah. Um, and eventually they, they, they sort of sorted it out now. I think they were aiming for 10 seconds between classes and it's not far off that actually. Yeah. Cause I've, 
just in like bring it back down to pretty much punter level of the same <laughs> thing like track days or test yeah. days let's say i'm in the radical my radical sr3 if you have a 911 turbo it's going to out drag you down the straight like yeah. that's going to happen and you could end up you can end up with a situation where they're in front of you you're not allowed to overtake them around the corner they burn off down the straight but you're just you're you get to that point where you're just close enough behind that you know you can go down the inside and break late, but they're prob- people are not aware, and it's on a track day. It's a bit antisocial yeah. to come from like fifty meters behind yeah, and, and, and lunge. And, but it depends. It's in whose eyes, isn't it? Because yeah. like if you're the lightweight prototype car, you're like, I'm not even braking. I'm not even braking. I yeah. haven't even slowed yeah. down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Which is why I love European track days because. You know, us Brits, we love health and safety and rules and regs, <laughs> don't we? But if you go to a track day in Europe, it, track day was a track day. It's a test day. It's just, yeah. it's anyone with a car can drive. It doesn't matter whether you've got a, you know, a race car or a road car or whatever. It's just go and get on with it. And Same for track limits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Completely yeah, different. Yeah. Track limits was a big topic at Le Mans this year, actually, because the stewards pinged loads of drivers with penalties after track limit infringements in practice and qualifying, but not just a sort of a rap on the knuckles in free practice of, or, you know, you exceeded track limits or whatever, or in qualifying, whatever you, you do it three times or delete the lap. It was like, no, no, you're going to get X lap deleted or X amount of time added to your first pit stop in the race or whatever. Wow. It was, it was serious stuff. And yet come the race, I don't think a single car completed a single lap without exceeding the track <laughs> limits because, and, and there are so many corners at Le Mans where, what I was going to say is basically impossible to stay within the white lines, but I suppose if they had brick walls lining them, you'd figure it out pretty quickly. But um, there's plenty of places where it's actually quite hard to, to keep all four tires, which is the rule with it. Um, sorry, within contact of the white line. So the rule is you could have three wheels beyond it. So long as one remained even okay. a, a tiny bit in contact with the white line. So you can put the whole car over just, but, um, but yeah, the, the penalties just sort of stopped in the race. I, there just would have been too many for them to keep up with. That must be really tricky to regulate. If you're like, okay, these are the rules, but lap one, we've got 10 cars. Lap two, another 10 cars have done it. Exactly. And then yeah. what do you do, I yeah. guess? Yeah, exactly. I think, I think that's a problem. There's a lot of discretion at Le Mans in a lot of different ways. What sort of amount of time are you, when you're commentating, how long are you commentating for? Uh, well, as you can probably tell by the way I'm talking now, you, you definitely kind of reprogram your brain into talking for as long as possible about every single point <laughs> because there's a lot of time to fill. I think I did 13 hours, 14 hours or something. In one go? No, 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 no. In stints. So you have a little crew of you and you rotate. That's just a completely different concept to me of just sitting down and then just, I guess, do you forget that people are listening? Um, or you still, no. still aren't aware of that? I tell you what I find really nerve wracking is it's not that I forget people are listening. I'm very aware of that. And all is well until your mates start texting you <laughs> saying you miss this and that you twat pay attention. <laughs> what are you talking about? You not my brother, Ollie, who yeah. I know, you know, well, cause he coaches you. Yeah. Ollie's my driver coach. Yeah, the number of texts I got through the race saying, Oi decade, you forgot to say this. And Oh no, but you got that wrong. And it's like, Oh shit. <laughs> what were okay looking this year's race and then i think we should talk about the 
next year's cars a little bit. Mm. What were some stand-up moments from this year? Uh, I mean, the end of the race was just ridiculous. It was it wasn't so much the twenty-four hours of Le Mans; as it was the twenty-four, the last twenty-four minutes of Le Mans, really, because just when things started to settle down, there was a, a, quite a big crash, and another car. That I think there was an LMP2 crash. James Allen went off at the Porsche curves. Still, don't quite know why, but he was lucky to walk away. And then before that, just before that, they were still clearing up bits of sort of circuit furniture where I think one of the porches had gone off or something. And so suddenly we had a safety car. And at Le Mans, a safety car is actually three safety cars that are deployed onto mm. the circuit and it creates three trains and they're all evenly distributed around the lap. So each safety car gathers the cars behind it in a tightly knit train and they all trundle around until the circuit's clear for green flag racing again. Now, in a way, having three safety cars is good because in a normal race on a normal circuit, you have one and, you know, you can lose a lap yeah. if um, if you get caught behind it. But meanwhile, the person that you are fighting a bit further up the road, you know, manages to escape just before the safety car peels onto the circuit. They can go around flat out whilst you're pegged back to 60 miles an hour or something and they'll catch the back of the train. So they've effectively gained nearly a full lap on you and that can completely screw the order and the outcome of a race now three safety cars stops that happening but what it can't stop is the ability for you to lose a third of a lap in the same way so depending on exactly when the safety car pulls out and when they pull out they come out fast there's no screwing around you know they need to pause racing immediately because in that moment quite rightly safety comes first safety of the marshals the recovery cars and so on so you can come out of arnage for example where one of the safety cars is stationed and boom you have to you know you hit the gas to come out the corner and suddenly it pulls out in front of you you have to back right off but if you were challenging a competitor that was say 50 meters ahead of you that you've been trying to close in on for the last 20 laps and they just escape, then they can stay fully lit, or at least fast enough, driven safely, to catch the the safety car train ahead. So they gain nearly a third of a lap. So suddenly we saw, with sort of half an hour of the race to go, some key battles neutralised by this happening. And what was, say, a five-second gap suddenly becomes one minute 30. But not all the time. Because it can also have the opposite effect. It can also close up a field that previously had large gaps, Mm. a minute or 30 seconds or whatever. So suddenly we had this epic battle in GTE Am unfold, particularly for second, third and fourth places. But the real one was LMP2, which, by the way, if if you're a casual race fan and you don't really know what LMP2 is, I just dial into it because it's awesome it was some of the most exciting racing and thank goodness for that category because lmp1 only had five cars this year two of which were works toyota rebellion as a private independent p1 team did a good job to keep them on their toes uh and they did split them at the end so to well done them but still it's not the most exciting class lmp2 by contrast has evolved into what is for all intents and purposes a one-make category most teams run Orica chassis. They all run Gibson V8 engines and they can choose between Michelin and Goodyear tyres, which turned out to have pretty 
pretty equal performance actually. So in the dying moments, you had United Autosports car, which had been holding a nice lead, suddenly under like maximum attack from Anthony Davidson, who's he's got to be the go-to guy. If there's a if there's a gauntlet to be thrown <laughs> down at the end, and you want a terrier of a driver to just go and you know not leave anything on the table and just wring the car's neck in the hope of glory as you cross the line he's your man and he really did exactly that and he started hunting down phil hansen who had a chilled lead those guys had done such a good job a really kind of effortless run like a metronome throughout the race and suddenly it's great because you have the radio communication the engineers on the radio to phil hansen going uh, look just let you know um you know we want to look after the car don't panic, but and Davidson's in the Jota car behind you, and his pace is this. And then, like a lap later, they come back on the radio, and like, okay, Davidson closing down on you a little bit. Um, we're not sure if they need to make a pit stop. We think we might have to, so just need to pick up the pace a bit. And then a lap later, it's like, okay, Phil, push, 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 push. <laughs> we really need you to push. This is going to be really tight. It's going to be absolutely neck and neck, and we definitely need to make a splash and dash for fuel. Blah, blah, blah. And, um, and so he did. And, and, and what was super interesting was this kind of game of cat and mouse that the teams were playing. And I think they were trying to like dummy each other into thinking one had to make a splash for fuel or they didn't have to and so on. And with literally a couple of minutes to go, the leading car of Phil Hansen had to pull in for a splash and oh. dash. And it was like heartbreak. Meanwhile, Jota looked thrilled. They roared into the lead. Oh no, actually, no, no, no. He didn't go into the lead because he was coming from a long way back. So, so then as the leader came out onto the circuit, Davidson in the Jota car was coming onto the start finish straight oh. and they both pretty much came out not quite side by side. Hansen kept the lead from Davidson and it was all, but then the next lap, the excitement was over because Jota also needed to make a splash, oh, yeah. and, splash and dash for fuel. So, so, but it's just exciting to think that you have that. <laughs> and that's just one of the stories. There were a couple yeah, yeah. similar things unfolding at the same time. GT pro was pretty exciting too. And you just think, these guys have been going around in circles for 24 hours. How is it this close at the end of the race? This is wild. It's mad how these, these things happen when literally they've been driving flat out for 24 hours. That's just bonkers. It's bonkers when you consider what a 24 hour race really means, not only for the drivers, but for the components of the cars, everything is tested to its absolute limit because evolve technology as you as best you can do whatever you want what you can't get rid of is the heat stress uh the frequency the sorry the, the, the sort of yeah the vibrational frequencies that resonance that ricochets through the car every time a car goes over a curb massive g loadings you know you've got electrical components uh, you've got the drivetrain you've got the engine just there's so much and that's before you factor in getting the hit. sort of turf <laughs> war of racing you know yeah getting hit or tripping over slower traffic in another class there's so much at risk at le mans the whole time and i often think it's quite funny listen to well, even us commentating but um uh, you know, before I started doing the commentary, I'm, you know, I was always listening to various commentators, often Radio Le Mans and so on. And they're chatting about life and they're chatting about, you know, the weather forecast. And then they go to their sort of ad break and then they come back and they talk about future regulations. And I'm thinking, you have no idea what those drivers are going through out there right now. <laughs> Every lap, most corners, 
they are crapping their pants because they came you know, within a gnat's whisker of absolute doom, you know, and, and there are so many incidents, most of which you forget, you know, but you just, there's always something and you're driving and you think, Oh, that was close. And Oh, Jesus got away with that. And, and it's happening every lap. And everyone on the outside is just, you know, watching for the next pit stop. Should I get a beer? We'll come back in four or five minutes. I know. (laughs) But even in the team, you know, when you sat with the team and, you know, you've handed the car over to your co-driver, you know he's going through the same thing. But, you know, you're having a massage. (laughs) That's their problem now. (laughs) It's it's mad. But that's what makes it so great. And uh, you're making me really miss it now. Oh, and I love Get back in the driving seat. (laughs) And I I love the multi-class nature of it. Yeah. So having slower cars and faster cars is yeah. so much more interesting than just one category of car potentially driving around without necessarily seeing another car. It It, it is, but also it means you've always got a race to enjoy because you know, the nature of motor racing, particularly at, at world-class level, is manufacturers come and go, budgets come and go, economies go up and down, that massively impacts the budgets and the interest from manufacturers, the quantity of teams on the mm. grid and so on. You know, you look at Formula One and, okay, sometimes we luck into an exciting race in Formula One, but it's basically the Mercedes show, yeah. right? And in LMP1 recently, it's basically been, sadly, it's basically been the Toyota show. And whilst they deserve it, I'd love to see them, you know, have There's no other Porsche, Audi, whoever. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. You know, Le Mans this year was still bloody brilliant because you've got GTE Pro, you've got GTE Am, and like I just said, you've got LMP2. And there's races to be had in all of those, and they probably fight harder than the P1 cars. So as a purist, as a race fan, it's just fantastic. Yeah, it's so cool. So moving forwards on, on just on that, we'll still, okay, stick with Le Mans for a bit, why not? The new cars, the new category, um, what are they called? Hypercars. Yep. I've seen a couple of, we've seen a couple of pictures of some in the last couple of days, really, I guess they yeah. must have been released at Le Mans. Uh-huh. Um, so what have we seen? We've seen, there's a Peugeot. Peugeot, I think Baikol has released a, a, an image. Baikol, Toyota. Yeah. Um, all of which kind of look like LMP1 cars. Hmm. They do. I think the one, the one that Toyota released a while ago looked, to me at least, a little bit underwhelming, a little bit road car-y. It wasn't. Yeah. And I thought, oh God, if this is what hypercar is, I'm going to struggle to get excited about this. Um, but you can't put too much stock into the first sort of graphic image. Yeah. that uh, That's without know, all of the bits on it. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought from that image that aerodynamic, you know, wings, flick ups, all the stuff that makes these cars look cool, in my opinion, was going to be, pegged back by the sort of new concept mm. rules, but it doesn't seem to be the case actually. And now that now it's evolved. So basically just to try to explain this took me forever to wrap my own head around when I was doing my, my pre-race research, they want to get more man- manufacturers into Le Mans. Of course, that's a normal challenge. And to do that, they need to do two things. Number one, it needs to be cheaper, a lot yeah. cheaper and I read a really interesting quote actually from, I can't remember who it was, so I'm not going to, not going to pretend I know, but what, one of the team principals saying that you could probably win Le Mans this year in 2020 on one tenth of the budget. It would have taken even five years ago. And that's a huge step in the right direction uh, because the budgets were getting to F1 levels, you know, 
two, three hundred million yeah. a year, which is insane. Just, just right? Complete like wildness. Um, and that's fine if it's sustainable and everyone comes out to play every year, but they don't. They, you know, the manufacturers fall away like flies and it leaves the whole, the whole thing up in the air. So what they want to do is they want to bring the cost down and they want to get more manufacturers in. And to get more manufacturers in, you need to do a few things. A, you need to give them a good chance of winning, even if, you know, Aston Martin is a much smaller company than Toyota, for example. Their yeah. budget is nowhere near that of Toyota. But they would probably love to be in the hunt for outright victory mm. at Le Mans. Equally, you've got to give the brands a chance to style the cars in a way that their customer base can recognise instantly as being one of their creations. And as much as I love Le Mans prototypes, I kind of get them, you know, because I'm in racing. But, you know, I understand that most people looking at them just think they look like Batmobiles. They don't look at an LMP1 and go, oh, that's a, that's a yeah. Porsche or that's, that's a Toyota. Yeah. yeah, that's clearly based on the MR2. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so they're trying to come up with ways to change that. And Le Mans hypercar, as the new regs are referred to, is their recently signed off version of it. So, so what's happening is here in the UK or here in Europe, I should say the ACO rule the roost. They are effectively in charge of Le Mans and all of its associated series. But in America where sports car racing is huge as well and has its own rich history with Sebring, Daytona, Road Atlanta, Petit Le Mans and so on. They have a slightly, you know, they're in charge of their own turf and they too need to appease their manufacturers and they got to do it in their own way. So we haven't had very much convergence in recent yeah. years that allows the major global car brands to go and race the big events in the States and then come and race here in Europe with the same car. And that's what everyone wants, because then you've got a real incredible you know, global calendar of blue ribbon events. It's also what the manufacturers want, right? Because their investment into a car design can take them so much further, take them to other markets yeah. and and so on. So Le Mans Hypercar, yeah, uh, new concept, hybrid uh, power and the ability to restyle the cars. I think there's a, a mandated aerodynamic coefficient between downforce and drag that they yeah. that is like a ceiling um to limit the amount of wind tunnel work and, and all of that to bring budgets down. And then in the States, they've got LMDH, which stands for Le Mans Daytona hypercar. And that's a different concept. They're going to take essentially the LMP2s that we have now. They might get a new chassis, new tub, but there are four specialist niche race car constructors that can create an LMP2 chassis. They have permission as it were. And, around that spine, as they're calling it, they can style the car to suit their brand and they can enter the car under their own name. And that's critical because if you go and buy a Delara LMP2 car today and it's very hard to rebrand it, uh, whatever, BMW, whatever, yeah. There are ways, I mean, there was an Auris in the race this year, Russian brand, but let me tell you, that's an Orica. That's yeah. not an Auris. Um but that's what they're trying to do. And the nice thing is the ACO are talking to IMSA and IMSA are talking to the ACO and everyone's on the same page. 
and they want to have an equivalence of performance. So they're going to figure out how to balance the performance of the American version, the LMDH, with the European version, the LMH, and allow them to both race with each other in the same events. So it could be a really cool new era. And actually, given the predicted budgets, a ton of manufacturers are saying, hey, this looks really interesting. And that's what we really want. It's all very well having these... These people going out there setting a new lap record, which is, it's, it's a lot of that is, it's got to be, that's just down to regulations and they're spending all the money to try and get the most within the regulations. Yeah. Like you can make a car, if they wanted to make a car five seconds faster. I'm sure it would be very easy if there were no regulations, like, like what they did with the Porsche, just yeah. take off the restrictor. There you go. Job done. So people are spending so much money trying to develop within some really specific rules that actually it's not necessarily a pace thing. Like you can have, okay, obviously over a certain pace, they've got to be very well developed. But like, like we've seen with LMP2, they, they can make massive jumps in a year. Yeah, and these rules are so, um, they're so invasive, but they have to be. I mean, they're doing a good job, but you know, you look at the balance of performance mechanism that they have yeah. in all forms of GT racing, but really is a big talking point every year at Le Mans. So the way that works for anyone listening that doesn't know is they want to encourage major automotive manufacturers to enter exotic versions of their road product, right? So in the GTE class, which stands for Grand Touring Endurance, um, you have, you know, an Aston Martin V8 Vantage able to race against the latest Porsche 911, against a Ferrari 488 and so on. And these cars are obviously all of vastly different architecture. And they would, if just, if just plopped out onto the circuit as race cars, they'd achieve wildly different lap times, yeah. which is no good to anyone. So what they do is they peg back the quick ones and they give a little boost to the slower ones and they basically balance the performance. And it's a very complicated algorithm driven system now that's hyper detailed and constantly being tweaked. And for the most part, it works, but also the manufacturers have to play the game and they'll never admit to it, but you only have to look, for example, last year, Aston Martin were awesome in qualifying. And then they got a little tweak in a negative way to their balanced performance, a little reduction in turbo. Come the race, they were nowhere. They just, they just went yeah. backwards. This year, they were awesome in free practice. They were good in qualifying, but they didn't qualify on the front row. As soon as the race started, they came alive. And, and it was very close and it was nothing obvious, but they just, in all the different ways bit more downforce, bit more power, bit this, bit that. They just had the legs on the competition enough to win them all this year. And good on them for doing that. You know, at the end of the day, racing and winning is about reading the rules and figuring out how to get how the to most get competitive first, yeah. package out of them, you know, and, and I've loved, you know, Gordon Murray has been on the airwaves a lot, hasn't he this year since he's sort of released his, his new supercar. And he's a real champion of that. It's all about interpreting the regs and looking for loopholes and figuring out. Yeah. And I, I just, I, that's fascinating stuff. I love that mindset. I don't blame anyone for trying as many ways as possible to get away with tweak. Okay. Sometimes people just outright cheat. Uh, but you see, I, I think it was with the European like WEC and stuff like that. Le Mans, 
versus the rest of the races. It seems to be a bit like that, where you get some teams that will just go for the outright win overall, and they yeah. want to win Le Mans, but like they just kind of play fair yeah. the entire season. And then you might get a team that's just maybe brought back a new car that's quite significant on a certain date, and they literally run multiple seconds below their top pace for the entire season up till that point. And maybe, maybe someone will accidentally go fast. Yeah. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, wait, hang on. Did the, did that car just do a lap two seconds? No, no, that didn't, that didn't happen. <laughs> that that was a mistake, a glitch in the system. Yeah. And then you get to Le Mans and then do qualifying, do all the stuff, get to the race and off they go. To me, that's all part of the game. And, and I, I don't mind it at all. Um, a lot of people tweet us over the course of Le Mans when we're commentating and say, oh, what's with this balance of performance system? You know, it always screws up the racing. Why do they have it? They should just get rid of it. And I, I sympathize with the frustration, but we literally wouldn't have GT racing without it. Yeah. It, it wouldn't be sustainable. So you've got to have a regular regulatory framework within which everyone can design cars and go racing. If you take that away, it's just this like unlimited hot rod free for all, yeah. which will be cool for a minute until you realize the races are really boring. Toyota's 25 seconds a lap faster than everyone else or something. Right. Exactly. Biggest budget. Exactly. It does seem to work very well the majority of the time. And it yeah. is easy to sort of snipe at it. Yeah. But in let's say like GT3 racing, we've got so many different manufacturers doing it. Yeah. And the cars are all pretty much yeah, some Same. very, very angry keyboard warriors out there watching <laughs> watching Le Mans 24 hours late, let me tell you. <laughs> My direct message in Twitter is not always the friendliest place to be. Uh, it's, it's, you've got to look at it from the, the point of view of the people organising the event. Yeah. And what can they do? They, they've got to do something like that. Yeah. Even if sometimes it seems like they've made weird choices. Yeah. And whatever. Well, I think the cars are going to be cool. I I love how they relate to road cars. And for a long time, before I'd started driving any sort of prototype st- stuff like that, I didn't really appreciate those sorts of cars at all. And I'd go, oh, there's a Porsche. I can see a Porsche on the road. GT3, GT3, like, same, same. Yeah. Great. I want that to win. And the idea, and I think it's, it's, it's such a shame that we're not going to see Aston Martin. Um, but these cars, that there will be a road version. And what is the rule? How many do they have to make? To enter what? Uh, Le Mans, whatever is it? Hypercar. Uh, the hypercar. Have they, got rid of, have they scrapped it? It's a good question. I don't know if it has to be based. It used to be like maybe 20 cars. To, maybe it has to be based on a road car with a minimum production or something. There was a minimum production. There used to be anyway. Until God. maybe, I don't know, this year. I really should know this answer right now, but I don't. Aston were like, we're making the Valkyrie road car. There's going to be yeah. the GTR Pro, and then there will be, yeah. which is possibly the one that was going to be in the adapted. Yeah. Have they ruled that out? They've said they're not going to do it. Bugger. That's because they're going F1. Probably. Going F1. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> putting their name on something. Putting a sticker on a team. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a shame, isn't it? Because the Valkyrie thing, if that, if that went into the hypercar class, oh. that would feel like a really, real, really authentic, mega exciting race entry wouldn't it i mean yeah it's got this copy and whereas we're gonna see lots of things from people but peugeot coming out with their car you go yeah okay i get it you've made a race car whereas the aston story was like we're making a road car and then there's going to be 
Yeah, it's kind of a road race car, but yeah. there's this story that then goes to Le Mans. Yeah. And I'm sure Gordon Murray would love to make another car. Yeah. That then races and all this sort of stuff. But- well, that's the, with both the Valkyrie and with Gordon Murray's car that, you know, they're already iterating the road car into a track day product. Mm. I mean, it's, it makes total sense. You don't have to do that much to make it race worthy, depending on the, the yeah. sort of regs that you're working to. But yeah, I, I'd love to see that. That is the, the fundamental concept of the hive car thing, I think. And, you know, it makes total sense. I've often thought actually for years, I'd, we're, we've all been living in the midst of this wild, I'm talking about road cars now, this sort of wild hypercar era, ever more ridiculous, wide, new one every week. winged hypercars. And it's, it is totally over the top. And as much as I get up on my high horse, when I see another one on the cover of a magazine or yeah. Instagram or whatever, and you think for God's sake, how much of that downforce are you going to be using when it's parked outside Harrods? I mean, <laughs> such a load of crap, a lot of it, but I reckon we'll look back in decades to come at the last 10, 15 years as being a, you know, a real kind of glorious era of road car production, because that's what it's all about. If, if you look back through history, you look back to cars of the 1920s and 1940s, you can draw a lot of parallels and those cars are celebrated now. They're on concourse lawns all over the yeah. world and traded for tens of millions of dollars. And wild exotica is exciting and we, we need it. Um, it's easy to be dismissive of it. And I'm definitely guilty of that. But at the same time, I think this stuff is going to age really well. I love that it exists. Yeah. I'd not, if you had, if I had unlimited funds, yes. Yes, I would own multiple of these cars. I would have the track day versions. I'd have, I'd have an F1 car in the garage. I'd have all sorts of stuff. Well, hang on, let me ask you then, because you've got an F40 in the garage, which for me is like where the conversation starts and finishes. That is hands down, I think, the best supercar ever made. I feel very lucky. I can speak from recent experience. I was making a film for Goodwood in one just a week or so ago. And... I think I used a really cheesy phrase actually in my presenting. I think I said something like it was automotive therapy and I can sort of stand by that with a straight face because that's exactly how it felt driving that flat out. And looking at this younger era of, of more contemporary hypercars, I'm interested to know which of them can deliver a similar thrill and you've probably got way more experience of me than an understanding of me. I don't follow that stuff yeah, very yeah. intricately. Well, so I, what would you have if you could have anything that was, let's say, you know, no more than five years old, maybe five or 10, whatever. The, of the, the current Money, lot, no object. Purely on ethos. Okay, if you just said I, I was going to have a hypercar, I'd, I'd, have, I'd probably have one of the Koenigseggs. Which one? I'd, I'd have a 1-1 a or something like that. Okay, you're going to have to explain that. So, to I know nothing about uh, this stuff. The one-to-one was the first mega car. So it produced a megawatt of power, which was basically like 13, 40 horsepower. Okay. But 13, but it was a one-to-one power-to-weight ratio. So wow. it was 13, okay. 40 kilos. Yeah. And I just think Christian and what they do at Koenigsegg is just a whole other level above what everyone else is playing at in, yeah. in that high-speed world. However, and I think they look cool, We've since had the T50, which as like a concept of something to drive on the road, ignoring whether you like the looks or not, I'm not 
100% sure about the looks. I think it looks a bit funny and I think the fan looks a bit weird. But his ethos of what makes a car a good driver's car is what I look at and go, that's going to be a bloody great car. Yeah, totally. And, and if you gave me three million pounds to spend on it, it had to be a new-ish car, mm-hmm. I would have one of them. Hands down. Love it. Okay. Because it's just going to be great and it's going to be great for all the right reasons. Yeah. Super light, great gearbox, yeah. um, unreal engine. Yeah. And then you can put luggage in it mm-hmm. and have two of your mates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. You look yeah. at all this stuff, modern stuff, uh, modern Ferrari SF90. Mm-hmm. So that's their latest sort of, it's not the top tier, mm-hmm. but it's like slightly one. They've sort of created a new niche mm-hmm. in between. So it's your, what are they? 400 grand, something like that. 980 horsepower hybrid powertrain. It's basically a Ferrari F8. I'm sure it's not, but it is plus hybrid. Yeah. But it's got no luggage space. Right. None. Um, it's, it weighs like 1700 kilos or something and is, yeah, it's got loads of power. Yeah. That, that and it's four wheel drive. So I drove last Monday, I drove a Ferrari F8. Okay. I got to drive it for 20 minutes on the road and 20 minutes at Goodwood. Yeah. Not the best track to be just having like a couple of laps, but I got out of it and I had a real like moment when I got home. Um, I think my other half was like, you seem a bit like odd. I was like, yeah, it's a bit odd because I've just driven the latest, greatest Ferrari. And I, I didn't think it was crap, but like, I just got nothing out of the experience. Wow. It's on paper, everything you could want, like interior, great driving position. Great. Like power, unbelievable. All the electronic systems. Amazing. Turn in. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. The way it's balanced. Blah, 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 blah. Everything is amazing. But the electronics have got to this point where they're so good that we, I wasn't allowed to drive it with sort of in the more lenient mm-hmm. modes. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but in sport, which is the sort of normal mode, you can mash it in second. It's got 720 horsepower, like in a ton of torque. Yeah. You can mash it in second in any scenario. Yeah. And it just like zips off down the road. You, you don't get any notion of, it's struggling to deliver the power, which sometimes you get with like some traction control systems. Mm-hmm. You get no relation between I've put my foot down and there should be some consequences. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you're on a video game and you've pulled the acceleration trigger and it just goes down and you've missed out everything in between. And I just, so I went from driving that car, which mm-hmm. was a bit of a low, not because it's a bad car or anything. It's just, I just didn't get, didn't deliver for me the complete package. What I don't understand is, is why there is this obsession from the manufacturers with lap times that a car can do because absolutely pointless. When is that going to matter? So even if you buy one and as a customer, you love doing track days and you're going to be in an environment with your new purchase where a stopwatch might be relevant, but it's, not a competitive car. It's a <laughs> fun track day car, right? So whatever lap times you do, it's only for, you yeah, know, a bit bragging of personal rights. bragging rights, whatever. But I just don't understand if, if ultimately we have the technology now to throw onto a new supercar that makes something with 800 yeah. horsepower effortlessly accelerate out of a tight second gear hairpin with no slip, no wheel spin, nothing. And it just does all the work for you. Okay, it's going to achieve a great lap time. Yeah. Well done, Mr. Engineer. But where's the fun in that? 
you know, by contrast in the F40 the other day, I probably shouldn't be saying this because it's about to go up for auction, but you know, I was bombing around the lanes at Goodwood and you just find yourself with half an armful of opposite lock <laughs> everywhere. And that is awesome. You yeah. Know, it just, it was so fun. I mean, it's literally, you know, giving me tingles now just thinking about it. It just, it's, I couldn't care less about the lap time. I, I care enormously about this sensation, which I think we're slowly losing of, you know, man having to engage with machine and figure out some kind of symbiotic relationship that works for both parties. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to be figuring that out at the wheel of an F40 and it's a quick thing with a load of power and you've got to have a bit of car control and you really kind of got to know what you're doing, that's great. And I love that that car exists. And I kind of love that it's a car for people who know what they're doing, because to me, that's what a supercar or a hypercar should be. There should, Agreed. there should be a level that filters out the average punter, or at least says, Hey, look, you're welcome up here, but yeah, please go and like practice yeah. or take this seriously. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you got to kind of prepare for this a yeah. little bit. And by contrast, if it's in, I was in a, um, here you go, a little plug for some of the stuff I'm selling in a beautiful old Jag XK120. We were just on a, a photo shoot recently down near Beachy Head, actually. Beautiful country lane, sunny day. This is not a quick car, but I've not driven a car like that on the road for, for a long time. And just spent the morning trundling around for the camera. And it was so fun because you're not trying to drift or slide it. You're not trying to achieve any kind of pace or lap time or whatever. But what you are having to do is drive the car. And what I mean by that is, you know, the chassis is pretty good, but it's not that great. Yeah. The brakes are pretty terrible. And this is a very original car and it's as pure as it comes. So there's no sort of aftermarket Available modern brakes. Yeah. Yeah. It actually is. <laughs> um, no, but the point is, you know, you have, you can't relax. You've got to keep the thing on the road because it's responding to every little bump and ripple and the camber yeah. in the road. And, you know, you can't be lazy with your shifts. You know, you've got to kind of concentrate to do smooth gear changes and it, it's kind of moving around underneath you and you feel the mechanical linkage in the, in the, the, the sort of gearbox and you feel the drivetrain and it's just lovely, you know, and, and that to me, I came home and I was like, oh yeah. I, I don't need to risk going to jail and losing my driving yeah. license for to experience raw driving pleasure. You just get in something old cool like that. Yeah. yeah. I've got some friends that are into their older cars and, and for a long time, I just look at them like, nah, 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 <laughs> nah. If it hasn't got seatbelts, I'm not, I'm just absolutely not interested. <laughs> but as time goes on, I'm like, I kind of get it. Like it's interesting got, that that's your reason. It's, it's the not seat necessarily seatbelts, but it's like, a lot of it seems just, just wasn't interested at all. And then as time goes on, I get it like skinnier tires and you having to do all the things. So the back to back experience I had with this F8 just so happens it lined up this way. The next day I went to GTO engineering mm -hmm. and I drove one of their 250 short wheelbases. Oh wow. Um, Amazing. In, and I drove like a competition spec car amazing how was that went for a black down some country roads and honestly i drove for probably 10 minutes and then pulled over and like had a bit of a moment it's like i've the day before i was doubting whether i was even a petrol head anymore 
like what you, you clearly what, don't like on, cars. on the back of this experience you'd had at Goodwood the, driving the good the F8 yeah because I just I just thought I should I should be enjoying this this should be fun right and then I get in this 250 and the seating position's awful pretty much everything about it if you just look at it from a <laughs> as, apart from what it is is kind of awful and um, but you and you're sort of driving down the road and you're squashed into this thing and you I mean, your knees are up around here and sort of blipping these changes and trying to get it into the corner yeah, around. Yeah, but yeah. put your foot down or do the changes and open up that engine. Oh my, it was like yeah. life changing. Yeah. And I just pulled over and was like, okay, right. I like modern what, cars. What I like can modern I sell? Things, but like, how can I get something like this experience yeah. more often? Because yeah. it's clearly not about how good it is as a dynamic experience. Because totally. it doesn't matter. It was. I had so much fun, like fifty miles an hour, forty miles an hour. Yeah, that, but that's the whole point. Is you don't you get that experience, you get a thrill, and by the way, that satisfaction of figuring out how yeah. to drive it. You know, when you dial into it, it may have felt weird and uncomfortable at first, and loads of things annoying you. And we're very used to very capable modern cars and like luxury fixtures and fittings <laughs> and all that stuff. And you get in something old, and it's like, oh god, where's Apple CarPlay? You know, it just yeah. but wow, when you figure out how to drive them, it's this whole different thing. It's no longer a tool to get you from A to B. This is an experience in itself. And that, for me, is what it's all about. And that is why I struggle so much with a lot of this modern road car iteration in the kind of sports super and hypercar stuff where I look at the prices and I just think, do you know what? If you spent a quarter of the price of that, on something, whatever, you know, from 1960s, 1970s. Bear in mind, you know, you might be talking about two cars from very different eras that both have the objective of delivering a sort of a raw driving pleasure experience. You get so much more for your money in terms of that pleasure, in terms of that experience with the older car. Because, as you say, it's got a little bit less grip, a little bit less capable. You've got to work at it more. You're going to... It's the excitement... And this is, I think, the key thing that is missed. The excitement, that feeling of exhilaration and satisfaction is generally experienced when the tyres are near the limit of their grip. 100%. Which is why you can go out in an old, whatever, a little, I don't know, um, uh, 205 GTI Peugeot or something (laughs) like that. You take something light and nimble with a short wheelbase that responds to your steering inputs quickly and you've got a, whatever, 1800 or two litre engine in it, a bit pokey in a good way, you know, got good, yeah. good poke, I should say. And, um, and it's so much fun because you can put that thing on the limit of its adhesion in pretty much the first or second corner. <laughs> and by the way, not in a stupid hooligan dangerous way that's endangering the public. I mean, just having a little bit of fun. You can do that within half a mile of leaving your house and yeah. then you'll do it all the way to wherever you're going. But take the f 8 and all of its gizmos and its grip and its, you know, torque control and your control and all this stuff, you're never going to feel that limit because its limit is so beyond that of basically any driver. And by the way, speaking from experience of having been in modern stuff, when you're tasked with taking it to the limit of its grip, once you get that aero going and all the systems are engaged, the rolling speed is so huge that you're not going to experience any slip at high speed. What you're going to experience is a snap and there's no coming back from that. 
And that I think is a shame. By contrast, there is one car out there that I think achieves a nice balance between mega performance capability and just a wide enough window on the limit of grip to, to kind of demand your involvement, demand your skill. And what do you reckon it is? I'll give you a hint. It's a, it's a niche constructor. It's a new car, new sort of supercar, road eligible, track day special, new. not crazy money. Can't give you lots 600 of 600 LT? That would fit, but no, a bit more niche than that. More niche. Italian. Niche. Italian. Testing your knowledge here. Well, you're saying that niche, so I'm thinking like Alfa Romeo or something like that, but that's, that's, there's nothing like that. No, more boutique. Um, no. I'll tell you. Go I'll on then. You. Go, go for it. Take. Someone <laughs> made like a Lancia or something. It's the Delara Stradale. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I went in that the other day oh. at Goodwood. That thing is awesome. Like, wow. And I didn't love the looks in the photographs, but see it in real life. It's absolutely stunning, stunning car. Really nice presence, not over the top, not obnoxious looking, just pretty and very current. Yeah. And um, I mean, a lot of power, a lot of torque, beautifully made what's actually the, inside. What's the engine in that? I knew you were going to ask me that. Is it a four cylinder or a six? Mm, I don't know. Press pause on the recording and pretend that I know. We'll Google it. I'll look it up. Um, but um, yeah, no, it just had really huge arrows. So suddenly the sort of rolling speed you can carry through the quick stuff at Goodwood starts to get a bit scary, but in, in a fun way. And then out of the slower corners, you've got enough grunt to light up the rear end. You had to be, it had to have your wits about you. It was, it was pretty knifey. 850 kilos dry. So I'm guessing okay. nine something. It's up a ton. It's some sort of four cylinder. It's an EcoBoost engine. I don't know, it's probably like it's like, like a four cylinder turbo with yeah. It is four hundred horsepower. Okay, and weighs how much? Eight hundred. Eight eight fifty. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's um, fun. It's a lot, and you, you like all these things. They've got different modes, and you can turn everything off and crank so up you the, drive on the road as well. No, only on the track. But was I that, imagine it'd be comfortable on the road, actually. The driving position was absolutely fantastic. It's got this really clever mechanism where it just, in the same way as you would normally pull a lever to slide the seat, yeah. pull a lever and you slide the whole pedal box away from oh, you. It's really that. great. And um, it's a very proper like race car driving position. You sit low and reclined and the steering wheel is quite high, comes towards you close into your chest. As I say, you can push the pedals away, carbon tub. It was awesome. It's great, cool great thing. car. And it's obviously most people go like, "Who the hell's Delara?" But no, no, no. If you make if, all the race cars, that's, that's a reasonable question if you're not into racing. But you only have to look for a minute and realize Delara is one of the most successful race car constructors in the world ever. Period. They know what they're doing. Yeah, they do. I need to go and bug the guys at Joe McCarrick because I think they're the dealers. Yeah, I nicked, I nicked it off him. That's, that's right, how go. I managed okay. to get a few Bug laps. Yeah. Have a go somewhere. Yeah. Um, what have you, if, so you race a lot of different stuff and have driven a lot of different stuff and you get people coming to you to want to get fast in a car because they're like, oh, I want to do race some sort of historic racing. And do you get people coming in with no idea what they want to do ish? Or they're like, I would like to do some, Sam, I'd like to do some historic racing. Yeah. Point me in the right direction. 
It's a real mix. Um, I would say I end up working mainly with a very small group of clients who are already underway with, I mean, these days it's historic racing. Sometimes it's modern GT and sports car stuff as well. I just happen to be more immersed in the classic and historic space this year, uh, these days. So that is pretty much the entire focus now. But um, yeah, they normally, they normally have a year or two under their belts. Very occasionally you have somebody new who would like to have some guidance from day one. That's fine too. But they're normally people who already have a car or cars, historic race cars, and they already have a program. They already have a team that they sort of have a relationship with and keep their cars with. And they kind of, they've sort of found their feet in the scene and they've maybe reached a glass ceiling, the same glass ceiling in their development that everybody reaches. And they want to take it to the next level. And I love that because generally if they've, if they've, if they're motivated enough to pick up the phone to me, they're pretty geared up to see how far they can go with their driving. You know, they're happy to take it seriously and happy to get stuck in some real coaching and, and really kind of get to the front. And I love it because it's not a one-off, it's not a red letter day. It's the absolute opposite. You know, this is working with people over a season or multiple seasons. And, you know, I've got fantastic clients and you become great friends often with these people as well and, and develop really kind of valued relationships. And, you know, I've got, few clients in various parts of the world. Weirdly, uh, quite a few people in Germany for some reason that mm. makes no sense at all, but it's just worked out that way. And, um, and they take their racing really seriously. We have a lot of fun doing it. Don't get me wrong, but you know, the driver development side of things is taken seriously and I love doing it. The cars that it gets me into are just amazing. I mean, had to pinch myself a couple of weeks ago. I was racing in Zandvoort with a client, part of the ongoing coaching and he entered his uh, very beautiful, very original uh, early 60s E-type race car, fixed head coupe. Uh, but alongside that was a Lola T70. Ooh. And alongside that was a 2005, I think, Aston Martin DBR9 GT1. Ooh. And it's just like, you, you arrive in the paddock and look <laughs> in the garage and it's like, oh, God. I am lucky. <laughs> I'm really lucky. I, and I know I really, I'm really aware of that and I, I'm seriously grateful for it. But the, the lovely thing is, you know, they genuinely seem to get value out of the coaching as well. And, you know, if you can come along and put a setup on a car, you know, just nothing fancy. You're not reinventing the wheel, but obviously I've got a lot, a lot of experience now. You know, I've been racing since I was eight. So that's 32 years experience. That's quite a lot. Yeah. And, it doesn't take long to just put a setup on a car that sometimes they don't need that input, but sometimes you can transform one of their prized possessions from being something quite scary and quite challenging to something really easy and lovely to drive. And I raced a GT40 for a client with them at Spa in the six hour race a couple of years ago. And it's beautifully prepared by Girlsco who make these incredible recreation GT40s. Yeah. I have to say it was stunning and the car was good. Our, our shakedown test, the setup, everything that they did was fine, but it handled in a way that I remember GT40s always have done. I've been lucky to race them for yeah. quite a few years now, um, which was, you know, quite oversteery. Uh, you can be quick like that, but it's not that comfortable for an amateur. And I've always 
enjoyed dialing understeer into a car, not because I want to drive with understeer. I, in fact, I hate it. It's a painful feeling. But if you dial understeer into a car's inherent default setup, then you can drive in a way where you don't experience any understeer, but you also don't experience very much oversteer. It means you can carry way more speed into the corners, brake later, put weight on the nose on the entry to the turn, which dials out the understeer that's about to arrive and you just go into the apex fully loaded on the front end. And then when you release that loading, when you come off the brake pedal and pick up the throttle, because the car's default is understeer, is sort of leaning towards understeer, actually you neutralise it with the throttle. So you come out with a nice balanced car on exit and that turns out to be really quick because you can brake later and yeah. you maintain traction and it's easy on the car. It's easier for the amateur to deal with. And we went into the six hours of spa with mixed conditions. And I remember him coming in and said, I just love this car. I just feel like it can't do anything bad to me. And I was thrilled because that is exactly the feeling that I wanted to create when we did a little bit of setup work. And I've gotten into the habit of doing this now. I always take a similar approach and, few more clients have given me the opportunity to take their cars off and just, just for a day, you know, just go testing on my own with the team, just work on setup. And it's amazing the transformation you can have when you're just given a minute to do it. Because yeah. normally you go racing with a team, you don't really have any time, you're straight into free practice and all the concentration is on driver coaching, which makes total sense, by the way, because with very little driver coaching of an amateur, you can often get one, two, three seconds out of them quite quickly. Yeah. And you'd be lucky to get that out of setup changes unless the car wasn't starting in a particularly good place. But there's a different benefit, which is make an amateur driver feel comfortable at the wheel of their car with a more friendly setup. And they'll find two or three seconds from that alone. Yeah. And then you add the direct driver coaching stuff in on top, which finds the next couple of seconds. Suddenly you've got a competitive package. And then you've got to factor in the risk factor. If you've got a car that's not comfortable, if it feels snappy, oversteering or whatever, you know, you're heading out onto the track with the amateur driver owner at the wheel, already with the risk stacked quite high that something might go wrong that the yeah. car could get damaged in a spin or whatever particularly if you're talking about some of the historic racing we do where they're long distance they could be an hour two hours six hours whatever changing conditions we don't have wets and slicks depending on the car at least you know it's just the tires that are on it these yeah. black things that are already on the car and there's very there's not actually that much that you can do to a lot of these cars there's not so many settings you can change but you have to optimize what you do have available and so, yeah, just a little bit of input. I love that that kind of work. It's they're, they're among my favourite days, actually. As much as I love racing, I love testing, and I always have. I probably, yeah, I probably prefer testing. Actually, yeah, <laughs> I just love it. It's brilliant. Just go to a track, quiet track, go as fast as you possibly can. Change the car, try things. That relationship with your engineer, if you've got one, I used to love it in modern car racing iterating all the time and you get to the stage where you can feel the tiniest tiniest differences I remember actually once with Jota at Le Mans LMP2 they did a really good job on the setup and in practice we were fast as hell I think we were fastest in, in class in practice and went to try and replicate that obviously in qualifying and we dialed the car in so well 
that I felt the smallest differences and I, I just couldn't quite go through a section of the Porsche curves with as much rolling speed as I'd been able to before. And we couldn't figure out why, because we hadn't changed the car. Maybe the conditions changed, whatever. And it turned out that they just used a different nose and the nose that they, oh, right, had, yeah. they had used had in the past had a little repair to it. And that little repair in the carbon just, just made it sound that, you know, by a millimeter, maybe two millimeters, slightly different profile, but it's on a critical surface on the underside of the nose. And it just changed the balance. Just put a little bit more aero bias to the front, a bit more kind of pointy. And when you, when you recognize things like that, you realize, yeah, I'm, I'm dialed into this car and it's just the result of hours and hours of working with your engineer and, I just love that feeling. It's pretty. Yeah, it's so cool hearing people like an example exactly like that. You go out and like some tiny, tiny, tiny thing. The driver comes in and they're like, "It's, it's all gone to shit." And like what? No, yeah, yeah. There's like an ant stuck on the car somewhere that's just ruined <laughs> yeah. the aero yeah. at 190 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had a really good day at Silverstone recently testing. Although we were on a track day, which was not ideal, yeah. with a radical with Ollie. And we were just, we ran through a bunch of setup right. changes and things like that. And it was, it was really interesting because a hundred percent, like you said, if I am fully confident in the car, yeah, you immediately, you start just knocking time off straight away. Yeah. Um, and in that car, I'm reason I'm, I'm pretty confident now, but we were on a, a really old set of tires and yeah. I couldn't be bothered to buy a new set just for this day. Um, so they were like properly old and, um, <laughs> God. Properly on set of rears. That drives me mad. Ah, so frustrating when that happens. You're like, oh, I really, really want a new set of tyres so I can do the job that you've hired me to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Ollie, been, Ollie, Ollie probably called me afterwards. <laughs> Anyone listening that doesn't know who we're talking about, Ollie, my brother, coaches uh, Sam in Radicals. Actually, he often calls me at lunchtime for a bit of setup advice. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. Does he? Does he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we, we, genu- we genuinely, we have these geeky conversations that drive our other halves mad if they happen to be in the car with us <laughs> and we're on speakerphone and we'll spend, you know, 45 minutes talking about like, you know, high speed bump that and yeah, front yeah. rebound this and, you know, and I, my wife looks at me sometimes just like, are you serious right now? You're having this conversation now whilst <laughs> yeah, I'm in the car with and you? I can visualize it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Two clicks. Oh yeah. yeah, that's that's the way to go. That's the way to go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but he's good. He's really good at setup now, actually. And I think he's he's yeah he's really on his game. We went through the. I think initially the car was quite soft, um, and these terms all need to be taken with a pinch of salt because it's <laughs> neither. The, it's not soft. Went from quite soft to. Ollie's always like, yeah, you know what? Sometimes we just lock it all off and I go faster. And I'm like, okay, well, whatever. We'll try it. We'll go, we'll go to your extreme, and then I'm like, hmm. It's not that, that I don't really want to drive the car like that and wound it back a what, little full bit. Hard. Full, full hard. Yeah, yeah just yeah, like yeah. full hard. And then at the same time, he was giving me the psychological abuse of basically <laughs> like, so just to let you know, couple, like a bunch of my other friends who all race in the same team, um, he's like, well, Jerome has his car like this, <laughs> which is how you should have it, but you don't because you're too much of a pussy. And then Mark has his car like this and you're like, oh, fine okay i was like just okay put me in the put me in the jerome setup i'm gonna drive like that yeah whatever and then did you get on with it or not yeah, yeah no, totally yeah. It it was, worked, yeah. we went like really 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 stiff and it it was just a bit bit knifey but not not too bad and yeah. then dialed it back just like one not like just yeah. probably five percent back or ten percent back and that was yeah. 
That was a nice sweet spot. SWAT is time and treat to know because he's not here to defend himself. What's, <laughs> what's my brother's coaching style like? Does he, you know, is he kind and supportive or yeah, does he give you a kicking and take the piss? He's um, somewhere in the middle, probably a nice balance. He's generally kind and supporting <laughs> right, most right, of the time. Right, right. And I think, I think for me, a lot of the time, it's, it's all psychological. Yeah. It is learning why, whatever it is. Like, okay, actually this corner, you're trying to, tighten it up a little bit too much when you could just use a bit more road, kind of go the long way around, but you'll have more grip and you'll be faster, whatever, like something like that. Yeah. Minor stuff. Um, but then a lot of it is just getting back into pushing, pushing, yeah, like pushing the car to your, you know, your limit and its limit and getting there. Whereas if it's, let's say it's wet. Yeah. I just don't have much experience of driving that car in the wet. Yeah. And as time goes on, I get more experience of driving cars in the wet and blah, 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 blah. But the first time I drove that car in the wet was in a race and it was like torrential downpour at Brands Hatch. Yeah. And the back section is really damn fast. But when you have no idea how much grip you do or don't have, yeah. you, you you have to drive like 50% slower. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, then, it's true, it's true. I remember actually the first wet race I ever had in, in cars was a classic Formula Ford 2000 single-seater mm. at Silverstone. But just remember coming down the back straight for the first time on the first lap in the pouring rain and just thinking, do I lift off? <laughs> do I put my foot down? I literally have no idea. I think I must have coasted down the straight. Yeah. I just had no clue made no sense to me. So it's just experience. Anything's, anything's possible. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Honey, I, I asked that question about Ollie's coaching style because I had, I had mine sort of brought to my own attention recently when a, a client introduced me to somebody and he said, now, you know, Sam's my driver coach and he has this really interesting way <laughs> of delivering feedback in such a way that like doesn't wind you up. And he sort of says, now, yeah, yeah, no, that was great. That was great. You did a really good job, a really good job there. But maybe you want to think about doing this. on the next. And I didn't realize it was quite so gentle, actually. Yeah. And I know that a lot of coaches are just like, belligerent and abusive and they just kind of pound their clients into shape which does work but it's you've got to get the right person it's got to be the right person doesn't it and you've got to that relationship is really important because you've got to trust your coach yeah and especially with with any speed of car yeah if they're saying you can carry a bit more speed and you just don't believe them yeah then you're never going to do it 
Um, I had a, a really weird coaching experience re- recently. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say what it was because I don't want to call out the person, but it was a, a type of driving that I don't normally do. And the guy kept bringing up physics okay. based situations. He started explaining it from a physics point. Fine. And, um, and I'm quite into my physics. Okay. Studied engineering. I have oh. a vague idea of okay. what's going on. <laughs> okay, this is interesting. And he was just, the things he was saying just didn't make sense. Oh. And I was like, oh, oh, please stop trying to me. use these analogies. Like, they're, they're wrong. Oh, wow. Um, Can you give us an example? I'll give you one, one example. Yeah. He was saying, okay, and I get what he was trying to say, but he was like, okay, when you're driving, can you influence the past? It's like, what? Okay. That sounds more um, philosophical. Yeah, and that's what I was thinking. I was like, is this where we're going? Are we down some weird philosophical route? I'm like, well, I guess you could influence the past by by deciding what you do like right now or in the future, and that will result in being the past. He was like, no, 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 no. Because your rear wheels are in the past. I was like, what? Like, you know, they're like behind you and they're in the past. They're the the past, because they they've already happened. I'm like, no they exist in the same timeline as everything else. I guess that they react to maybe things you've gone past or the front of the car and the back is behind you and it reacts afterwards maybe or whatever. Yeah. He was like, no, it's in the past. Okay. We need to change tact here because we're just going to have a falling out and I'm going to get really angry with something (laughs) that's probably doesn't matter. But uh, I'm, I'm fascinated to know what, what was the, was that like a stepping stone to the it point, was a stepping the point to that you I'm were I'm trying to with. think what it was. It was about, it was something to do with about controlling the car with the rear. So okay. steering with the rear. Okay. And so he was being like, well, you can influence the front of the car with the back. Okay. Nothing wrong with that. Totally that makes fine. Sense. Makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Another thing he said was, oh, I, I, he was a really nice guy and had a really great day, but it was just, we, we just slightly fell out over some things. He's like, not- well, if you let let go of the steering wheel, it won't correct. And I'm sort of like, okay, what do you mean? Like, do you mean the st- the front wheels won't? Because when you let go of a steering wheel, and let's say you're you were drifting or going around a corner and you're sliding or something, and you let go, this the wheels keep going in the direction they were going, and the steering wheel will then, if the back of the car moves, the steering wheel will rotate, yeah, to stay in that direction, yeah, because the front wheels are just following the track that they're on. Yes, so it will. It'll do the first part of your opposite lock for yeah. you. Yeah, it, it'll. It'll just as if you had a little. You're going down in a straight straight line, and you sort of had a bit of steering input on, and then you release the steering wheel. Yeah. It'll self straighten. Going around a mini roundabout, yeah, or a, a U-turn. Yeah, if you let go of the steering wheel when you're pointing in the right direction, yeah, it will wrap back up to the front. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, "It won't do this." It'll it was like wrap- it's because the rear tires are pushing the front tires forward. I'm like, okay. It's not how that's not that's not how it works. And then invariably the first corner had a little slide or something. I like let go of the steering wheel a little bit. And it's like ding. Like, mm. I get that you may not want to do it or whatever, but God, interesting. So I th- anyway, we've seen I can sort of ima- I can think of scenarios where I wonder if that's I can think of scenarios there's, where it maybe starts to make sense. There's just, totally situations yeah. where you don't want to let go of the steering wheel and. This you basically was, never want to let go of the you steering wheel. You never want to let go of the steering wheel because yeah. then you're in control the entire time. Yeah. But 
you don't want to hold the steering wheel too tight. I'm forever kind of sitting in the passenger seat, just just give me a little, just a little elbow <laughs> bump, you know, just a little tap on the hand, just just a reminder to people. Because you can see sometimes you look over it and you're super chilled in the passenger seat and you look over and they've like got sweat pouring yeah. from them in a car that's really not physical. And it's like, okay, it's cool. You don't need to hold the grip quite so hard. <laughs> and actually, if you just relax as much as you can, you'll find the car so much more friendly, you know? And, and I completely sympathize because when you're doing something, doing any activity that is unfamiliar, it becomes this huge assault on all of your senses and your brain's desperately trying to keep up with something that actually is kind of quite a physical endeavor. You know, it's a lot of it's done through mm. or needs to be done through feel, but the fact that you've got a coach alongside you means he's probably taught you or just, you know, told you a load of bollocks that day that you're trying to play out in your yeah. head as you're driving, whatever. And, and it's just overload. And so that is hard work and you do physically tense up from that kind of mental stress. And actually that is one of the biggest challenges because as soon as you can calm that and release that and just drive with a completely relaxed kind of physical element to, you know, your body language is relaxed. It's amazing how much the rest of it takes care of itself. And I reckon if you can combine that physically relaxed demeanor at the wheel with impeccable vision and discipline of vision, i.e. where you're looking, when, how frequently are you looking far enough ahead through the corner to an exit that you can't even see yet. And all of these things, because what your eyes see, your hands and feet tend to follow. And we can talk to the cows come home about breaking point this and apex point that and this line and that line. You know what, if you just look at the goddamn corner and I know you can't yet see the exit, but imagine it, try to visualize the shape, the profile of the turn past the point at which you can see on this little bit of the track we happen to be in. I promise you your foot on the brake pedal will moderate its pressure ever so slightly. Your hands will put that first degree of steering input in at such a rate and at such a moment that makes more sense. Whereas if you don't look and most people, and I'm just as guilty by the way, if you don't look up enough, you don't look through the turn enough, then you're driving towards in front of you. And that doesn't always make sense when you arrive just a few meters further down the road. So yeah, relaxed body language, good vision, sack your coach. It's <laughs> <laughs> so much more stressful having someone sitting next to you when you're driving. Oh, it must be horrible. Like, Absolutely horrible. Yeah, I totally sympathize with that. Just like get rid of that person. Because you, you then, you're, you're sort of performing at that point in time. Even though you're trying to do all the stuff, yeah. just trying to forget that that person is there. Yeah. And also they're weighing your car down. So that's obviously slowing you down. Of course. Um, <laughs> Fistfuls of lap time, especially with Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, with the, the relaxing at the wheel, I've definitely over time, I'm way more relaxed. Yeah. And a huge part of that was getting my seat right. Oh, and, interesting. And meaning that I'm like locked into my seat. Right. So as soon as I feel like I'm not moving, yeah. then I can lift my feet up. I can use my hands. Yeah. It sounds obvious, doesn't it? Yeah. But like there was a big step between being able to uh, left foot brake when I knew I wasn't going to slide forwards. Wow. Interesting. So you were really moving around in your seat before. I was just moving a, li- like, a, a little bit. And then there was a conscious decision. I can't remember who I was talking to that day. It, was, it wasn't it was Ollie, but it was someone else. Because um, Ollie's like a, he's like, don't, you don't, I'm just as quick with the right foot. Like, okay, fine, fine, whatever. 
I, I just want to learn left foot. That was it. Yeah. It's a funny thing, the left foot breaking thing. There are, there's a time and a place for it. And you're right. It's just a cool thing to be able to do. It's, it's a very kind of trendy thing at the moment, isn't it? It has been for a few years. A lot of contemporary race cars from Formula One down only have two, two pedals now. So yeah, you should probably be able to left foot brake. And the reality is if you can do it really well on, on average, I reckon it is quicker a little bit and it makes total sense. Like, of course it's quicker. You know, you, you don't have, your feet. you don't have the, the time it takes to roll off the throttle and onto the brake. But not only that, you get more pitch change in the car when you're closing a throttle completely and then getting onto the brake than you would if you just can, you know, yeah. ride out of some throttle at the same time as riding into some brake. And all of these things give you a completely different toolkit to play with as you go through a corner. And that's why I sometimes find that, I mean, I'm a tall driver, right? I'm six foot two. So my knees are often, you know, wrapped up around the steering wheel and, and I just don't have the leg room to move my left foot over to, to cleanly and confidently left foot brake. And more often than not, I'm in a manual car and I've got to do some downshifting. I've got to use a clutch. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense. But I will say that sometimes there is a sequence of corners that don't require any uh, gear changes. And I'm in a car where I have some legroom and it's so nice just to be able to move your left foot over onto the brake and just, just use it not even really as a deceleration device, but more of a weight transfer mm. device just to pivot a little bit of weight forward, get the nose in. I love that. And I do it a surprising amount in historic cars because they tend to be bigger. Most of the historic cars I'm in are, are GTs or yeah. touring cars. Got all the legroom in the world. And, um, I really like it because they often have, if you think of the way that they got power out of like a historic touring car or something in, let's say the eighties or the seventies, all the power's up top. There's nothing at the yeah. bottom. So you've got to really be careful not to lose revs. Left foot braking is brilliant for that. So, yeah, I quite enjoy playing with it a little bit in historic cars. And also the older stuff, like an E-Type, you get so much dynamic movement in the car. They're big old wallowy yeah. boats of a thing, Off you know. And you don't have to make much of an input on any of the pedals, steering wheel, whatever, to get quite a big change in pitch or roll. And just a little breath onto the brake can really help you with that. And there's certainly a few tracks. Goodwood's a fantastic circuit for left, left foot braking. You can really... You can really unlock a little, a little level extra, of yeah. performance. Yeah, if it's in a car where you can do it easily, yeah, it's good. You don't want to ride two pedals too much because, especially in the old stuff, you're going to cook the brakes quickly. And normally, you know, managing brake temperature, brake wear, and brake temperature for a long race in an old car is a challenge enough anyway. But when you can get away with it, yeah, left foot braking. So yeah, I forward. think my when I first started the big gain I got is I used to be a bit hesitant from coming off the throttle to going onto the brake. Mm -hmm. Just like psychologically, I knew that I should be holding down the throttle until the brake point and then just bang across. Yeah. But there was invariably some gap in between. Yeah. And as soon as I went to left for braking, you then go from there being no gap to there being a crossover and trying to not cross yes. over. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 To, you've overcorrected. Over yeah, yeah, yeah. That it's, was a noticeable. It's interesting that actually, because it's such a common trait and, and we all, 
we often you know, use VBOX data logging systems mm. like I'm sure you guys do, uh, but we use them with the historic cars. And you see the, the lines on the graph and, and they show the, the throttle position and the brake position or, or on VBOX it's a bit more simple than that. You've just got a speed trace going up and down yeah. as you accelerate and brake. And the difference between the pro's line and shape and the amateur's line and shape is so often that the pro's is more uh, diagonal, more aggressive, more pointed. So, you know, they're sharper onto the brake and they brake for longer, maybe harder. And then there's a sort of a V shape at the lowest speed point in the corner. And then it goes back up. Whereas the, the amateur often rolls, a bit like you're saying, you know, rolls off the gas and then rolls into the brake and then sort of, you know, rolls through the apex, a bit more of a U shape on the telemetry yeah. line at the end of it. And without getting too nerdy, what's really interesting about that is somewhere in the middle is actually the sweet spot. Because if you're full of confidence from years of experience, you can be a bit too hard on the car and it might feel quick. It might actually be quite quick, but I'll never forget a lesson that I think the driving coaching guru, Rob Wilson, you know, I take my hat off to him. He's a, a dude. And, um, you know, I, I keep lessons from him in mind that I learned from a day with him when I was in my late teens, you know, and his, one of his catchphrases is always gentle, firm, gentle, firm in relation to how you apply the yeah. brakes. Now he will then go and demonstrate gentle, firm normally. I mean, let me tell you, do you know Rob Wilson? I know who he is. I've never met him. He's a dude. I can't recommend him enough. Go and do a day with him. It's not the guy that you take to a weekend of racing radicals to dial in your setup and da da da. It's a guy you go and visit once a year, maybe twice a year, and you just deal with the raw principles Mm. of track driving. And it's typically done in a rental car that gets returned to Avis or whoever at the end of the day, screaming and steaming. And you go to an airfield circuit. We used to go to Brunsingthorpe, but they've sort of stopped it now, which is really sad. And he lays out some cones to help create a track around the perimeter road. And there's just no room for excuses. It's you, it's him. You're in the same car that's a load of crap and the stopwatch. And the reality is you can moan all you want about how crap the car is. You're Ford Mondeo, yeah. whatever, whatever. It, it's the least exciting thing to drive. But as long as he's driving it around that lap faster by a few tenths or a second or two than you are, you've got stuff to learn, mate. And you need to acknowledge that and start yeah. listening. And he and I used to kind of like butt heads because I was like, this is so not like my race car. (laughs) This is your back garden, Rob. Like you do this all day, every day. None of this applies to my race car. It was only when I kind of grew up and I look back on it, I'm like, yeah, damn it. (laughs) He was right. He really knows his stuff. And these days I still use a lot of those lessons. And yeah, just to bring it back to your point, you know, his, his application of the brake pedal using this gentle, firm technique, this sort of not stamping on the pedal, more like squashing it, but squashing it quickly and squashing it hard in the way as if I challenged you to, you know, stamp on a balloon, but don't burst the balloon. Do you know what I mean? It's like a hard and fast squashing of the balloon up to a peak pressure point that's just below the point at which it's going to burst. That's what he does. But when when you try to take that gentle, firm philosophy and practice it yourself, Typically, it's just really slow with your footwork. And then he gets in the driving seat and does it. And it looks like he's just 
stamping on the pedal, just yeah. mashing it. But there's a subtlety going on there that's very difficult to see visually, yeah. but it's happening. And the real painful pain <laughs> in the ass is the stopwatch reflects yeah. it. And it works. You know, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of just, you know, we'll do sectors. We will, we'll stop doing a lap and we'll just say focus on the split time between, you know, entry to that chicane. So basically just dial it into yeah. a focus breaking zone era just to prove his point. And he always won. I mean, he's so fast. <laughs> the guy has Formula One drivers visit him all, all the time. And I mean, he loves telling stories about that, which, which is part of the fun of a day with Rob and, you know, superstar motorsport royalty. Yeah goes for days with Rob and they have a lot to learn. You know, it's mad. It's awesome. It's mad. I remember I did a sort of car handling day a long, long time ago. It was the first one I'd done and it was at Bruntingthorpe and I can't remember who it was with. It was with Palmer, but not Palmer. What at Palmer sport? No, no, no. It's Senem is Palmer, but he's nothing to do with. Oh, Oh, Don Palmer. Don Palmer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He's a bit of a legend as well. And he? he was really good. We definitely had some, just the way of going about it. We see things differently, but yeah, there's another one who's just like, he was mad, mad fast. And we were talking, one of the things we spent a lot of time was uh, in steering of like, just suggesting. So it's the same as, it was the yeah. same as the brake stuff. That's just like suggesting to the car yeah. before you do whatever it is you're going to do. Just a little bit of preload in the steering. A little bit of preload in the steering yeah. before you do it. Yeah. And the difference between, just turning into a corner, same speed, same place, blah, blah, everything. Yeah. And you don't do this thing and you just turn it and you might understeer a bit and you get around eventually. Yeah. Whereas you do this tiny bit of preloading and then you can, the car just turns in and it's like you put on a completely different set of tires. It's, it's just yep. mad. Yeah. 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 It's amazing, isn't it? It's, tr- <laughs> it's truly amazing. And this is what these guys teach and thank God for them because these are, these are subtle lessons. Honestly, I'm, I'm sure the stars of our sport in modern racing are doing it, but I don't think they're doing it consciously. Yeah. And so it's quite amazing to have these people out there that are able to see it and articulate it and pass it on. And I, I, you know, I feel like I have pretty good understanding about the dynamics of driving now, but it's all come from driver being a driver coach because i had to articulate it explain it i yeah. remember the first time i really had to do that i was in the passenger seat of a racing e-type at brands on the way into paddock with someone that didn't have much experience and it all got a little bit scary and i had to articulate clearly concisely and quickly what i needed to happen and finding those words that make sense and then being able to analyze, debrief and explain when you're back in the paddock afterwards. Unless you've done it before, it's very hard to do because you realize you've been driving subconsciously your whole career. And now you've got to teach somebody how to do it. They've not been doing it for 20 years. You know, it, it's, it's using vocabulary to articulate this stuff explains it and brought it to life for me for the first time as well. And, and now I kind of understand it, but um, yeah, it took a while. It's such an amazing thing, teaching people, like whatever it is. Um, I did a bunch of, I was a ski instructor for a couple oh, wow. of years. Okay. And a lot of parallels with driving on a track and skiing, I reckon. Yeah, probably. It's all about I, grip, uh, edge control. Yeah, but you're dealing with physics as well. And Momentum, physics, physics. you know, um, grip, line. Yeah. All of that. Um, but it, like you said, it was, 
one of the big things I learned was trying to communicate something to someone that hasn't got a clue. And when you tell them, and I, it happens to me all the time in just general life, I'll say something to someone and they, they give you the blank look. And often you kind of just want to say it again. You're like, no, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then, then they just start to get, and if you say it more than like twice, they start to get really annoyed. Yeah. You're like, but I don't understand. And a lot of people are like that. They'll tell you something yeah. and you clearly don't understand. And then they'll just tell you again. And then they'll get annoyed that you don't understand and they'll annoy you. And like, like, no, you have to be able to come up with like five different ways of explaining it right. and work out for each person. Yeah. And you also have to understand it yourself. Yeah. And you learn a lot about that by telling someone else how to do it yeah. or trying to explain it to someone else. How seriously are you taking your racing? I mean, are you, are you doing radical races left, right and center no. just here and there? Or is it just a bit of fun or are for you me, kind of on a road towards some ambition? I think for me, the, the main goal with all my driving stuff is to have fun. That's, mm-hmm. I want to be enjoying it. If I'm not enjoying it, I really do question it because it's all expensive. Yeah. Um, but I would like my skills at the beginning. It was, I would like to be able to get in a car, a quick car, take someone out for a passenger lap and then, then come back in and be like, hmm, he's pretty good. Yeah. Like that was and then invariably, as long as you're not dealing with people that have ever been on track, that's actually not that hard. Then it was just going down that avenue of becoming an all-round better driver mm-hmm. at all avenues. So I want to be able to control the car on loose surfaces, tarmac, whatever, like all, all of the above, mm-hmm. and then get quicker. And then with the Radical, I've, I've been doing some more sort of endurancey stuff in cheaper things. So we're, there's a couple of us who race the radicals who go and do the Citroen C1 endurance races. Oh, cool. So we've done spa twice and we've done Silverstone. And how's that? How's that it's car? Wicked. Yeah? It's wicked. The cars we've had have been awesome. Like so pointy. They just rotate really nicely. You're all over the limit the entire time. Great fun. And just like so much mental capacity space. Right. Driving something like that. Yeah. Um, and then just dealing with 150 cars on track of various speeds and yeah. whatever. I, re- I really want to try the Fun Cup as well. I hear yeah. good things about those cars. Fun Cup, I, I've heard, is is equally like a lot of fun. I know it's a, it's a, it's a bit more expensive mm-hmm. and people take it, well, people take the C1 stuff quite seriously, but how seriously can you take yourself in a C1? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> but, you racing's know, racing, man. Racing's racing. Winning's right? winning. And then, well, last year at Spa, the people, the people that came first cheated. Like they huh. remapped their engine and then they got caught at the end. <laughs> like they were just running another 20 horsepower to everyone else. Oh, God, like, I shouldn't laugh, but I, yeah. I just don't, I don't know this why is you what do I that. mean. If you want to win, you want to win. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, and I keep driving the radical every now and then because I, I like building up the skills in a car like that. Yeah. Um, I will race it a bit, but I don't, at the moment I'm not as fast as I want to be in it okay. before I'm going to race it sort of thing. So I would like to be able to, I don't know, set a lap time that's within a second or yeah, within a second of a pole time. Yeah. And then I feel like I can race. I love that approach. That makes total sense because then when you race, you're competent and you're happy to mix it in the, in the mid pack and radicals are fantastic because you know, it's a level playing field, right? Yeah. But they're not easy. I think the good thing about doing the radical program you're on is when you move on from that, especially if you move up to a higher level prototype, 
whatever the next sort of thing is, a LMP3 or something, something, you're going to find it so easy by comparison because you're accustomed, you're getting accustomed to a very responsive car with a lot of downforce, but it's generated with, you know, very low budget construction. So the the aero platform is probably, you know, everything on the car is probably flexing and moving a reasonable amount through the corner, which changes the car's consistency and you're going to have to react to that constantly. And if you step up, when you step up, you'll find everything's just that little bit easier because you've got a bit more grip. The gearbox is a bit better. The engine's a little more linear. The aero platform's a bit more consistent. And I always try to, I always try to say to people like, please don't be afraid of these quicker cars in historic racing. Mm. Of course, there isn't this ladder system that you guys in your modern cars kind of have. It's just cool. We want to go race in Monza next weekend as part of the Peter auto thing. What grids do they have? What kind of cars can we enter? What should I buy for next season? (laughs) And, you know, wouldn't it be fun to show up with two or three cars because, you know, historic racing, something's probably going to break, but also we're going all that way. Let's take two or three cars. So you can end up looking at a, at a, a schedule and there's opportunities to take cars that might vary in age 50 years or yeah. something and vary in power output by two or three times. And, you know, in fact, the Zandvoort race of a couple of weeks ago is the perfect example, you know, with an E-type and a DBR9. DBR9. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, you know, often clients will call me and they say, oh my God, I've just been offered this car. What do you think? I'm terrified of it. But do you think, you know, maybe possibly should I, could yeah. I? It's like, yeah, man, if it's <laughs> the right, if you're excited by that car and it feels like the right price, please, Go for it. Never be afraid of cars that are higher up the ladder, particularly younger cars. I've always felt that they get easier and easier to drive. And you just got to have faith enough in that concept to actually do it. And as soon as you try, so so in this case, the guy with the Aston, same thing. I think his only experience before buying that car was in an Alpha GTA, (laughs) which he'd been racing for like a year. And suddenly he's in a GT1 DBR9 Aston. What? Yeah. But you, you, what you're doing is a little different. Like you really care about being quick and competitive and it's a hotly contested series in radicals. So developing that kind of competency and, and that pace on the stopwatch is a slightly different thing from just being able to drive the car around the track yeah. with confidence, with safety and do it some justice as well. You don't want to be trundling around the back looking like an idiot. Of course you want to be in the mix. And what was so interesting is you know, from day one of testing when he bought that Aston, he's never had a spin in it ever, you know, and he's now really really quite competitive and he's winning the class often actually. And it's, and he loved it from day one. Yes, it's intimidating, but that passes after your first 10 laps. And then it's like, cool, this car's really good. They did a really good job at pro drive building this thing. (laughs) Yeah. The balance is kind of amazing. Wow. Amazing aero and, tires are as wide as a house so i got all this grip so the car's limit will stay beyond his most of the time but he's getting closer and yeah. closer and in the meantime just having a whale, whale of, a time, of a time loving life v12 yeah so i always say to people please don't ever be afraid of you know quicker more powerful high, I, higher level cars i had that jump um just within radicals so i started off in the sr1 so the, the yep, baby radical sure. on a, a set tire 
and ran into a lot of issues. One with the car, I think it's, it's not developed very well. We ended up loads of brake bias issues mm-hmm. and like really weird ones, mm-hmm. really dangerous ones. Um, and I had, had a big accident early on because of brake bias and just ended up inside wall at brands like corner one, mm-hmm. just like 70 miles an hour backwards or something. Um, and then had another issue at the end of the next season with standing water okay. on these tires that are just, they're not wet and the cars are super low and it yeah. took off properly took off nearly went over a wall was all, well, it was all fine, but psychologically, like this sounds quite serious. It was, it was, inter- <laughs> it was quite, it was actually the first thing I'd ever filmed with a 360 cam and you can watch the, wow. uh, the front of the car sort of explodes off, Yeah, but you can track it with the 360 cam because you can look up and you can see how high it goes up in the air. Oh my um, God. I need to see this. Is this do you, you have yeah, a YouTube it, channel? I've got it on my phone. Yeah. I've got it on my phone. It, okay. it looks less dramatic when you watch it back, okay. but it's did like a little bit of a Tony Hawk skate grind down there down a barrier at Cadwell Park. But so at the end of that season, everyone was saying, Sam, you need to go and drive an SR3. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm driving the SR1. It's like the baby car. It's like less downforce, less horsepower, less of everything. And this kind of scares me a little bit. Like in the dry, I'm getting there and I'm getting comfy with it. But in the wet, it scares me a bit. Why would I want to drive something faster? And then I went, I went and drove one. And came back in, and I think I remember saying to the other half, I was like, okay, this is going to sound weird. I, don't know what, I think she was with me then. But I'm going to get an SR3. Or I definitely said this to my parents. I was like, I'm going to buy the faster, more downforce, yeah. slick race car, more expensive, because it's going to be easier. It's going to be more... For me, the main thing was I wanted to be more stable. Yeah. And it was the best thing I could have ever done. Like, yeah. it, it's so much of a better race car. Yeah. Yeah. than the the baby one. And I can imagine that is like the same when you go up the totally go up the ladders of motorsport uh, cars. And to be fair to Radical, you know, what, what Radical have achieved are, you know, for, for the cost of those cars, the yeah. level of performance that those cars create, it makes a mockery of GT all these racing. track day, well, GTs, but all sort of track day special oh, yeah. type, proper big brand road car manufacturer stuff. And you just think you could literally spend a 10th and get a car that is faster more performance, more aero, more yeah. grip, more, you know, faster more to everything. 60, all the stuff that maybe you care about, you know, it just blows my mind. And, and, you know, you see these people arrive at the circuit with their, you know, track prepped competition <laughs> packaged X, Y, and Z. And it's just like, you have no idea yeah. how much you're about to cost yourself on, you know, <laughs> with all that weight and everything. And it just is amazing. The radical thing is, it's a great ladder. You know, I, I, I used to do road to Le Mans type coaching programs and mm. I had a, a couple of clients who were really early in their driving career that wanted to race at Le Mans one day. And one in particular had never even been to a racing circuit, a guy called Simon Dolan. And he ended up winning his class LMP2 at Le Mans within, I think, five years from his, was it five years? Maybe, maybe six. He was definitely on the grid at Le Mans for his debut four years after the first track day. And a lot of people say, oh yeah, but he probably just, you know, had that natural talent. So many people do. It's that thing. I'll be honest with you. I was in the passenger seat (laughs) of that first day at Silverstone and there wasn't much natural (laughs) talent going on. But he remains to this day one of the most capable and disciplined, quite amazing kind of, 
human beings in terms of the way he goes about things in his life just sets himself a goal and chips away at it every yeah. day and there's milestones along the way that are not outrageous the goal might be outrageous i remember being at le mans probably on that first year that he did and i think we had a load of mechanical problems we didn't finish and he said oh it's all right we're going to come back and we'll win it and i just remember thinking i love your enthusiasm <laughs> but you're you just said that without a glint of a smile on your face. Like, and he was like, no, 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 we'll win this. We'll win this. And he's just one of those guys, very, very few people that I've met. Uh, it just has this ability to set himself a task and he will get there. Yeah. But I mean, it's amazing what happens when you do this sort of, when you take a long-term view, I, I don't know what you're like. I am terrible at doing that. I want to achieve whatever it is that's exciting or challenging me. I want to do it today, yeah. maybe tomorrow, but trying to plan five years, seven years ahead for some goal like that isn't something that really enters my psyche. But with a few clients, Simon included, it was like, okay, let's just get going. He'd owned a load of fancy stuff. And I think when he took his, then future wife out on a date in a Lamborghini Diablo and spun on the way to the restaurant in the middle of the public road. He realized he maybe needed, needed a bit of help. Um, and we did a few track days. He got on fine and he wanted to start racing and radicals. This is sorry. This is why I'm talking about this. Radicals made total sense because the shape of the cars on a real basic level in a nice way, the shape of the cars excited him. He'd owned a load of fancy GT that and sports car me. stuff. And he's like, I want the next thing. I want the next level. I don't want to go and race a Porsche yeah. or some, you know, touring car, BMW. Whatever. I've had that stuff at home. It's in the garage. Let's get into a car that looks like a real racing car. So Radicals really ticks those boxes. And of course, as soon as you drive one, you experience a level of performance you didn't know existed yeah. behind the wheel of a car. And they're great because your coach can sit in the passenger seat and they've got this ladder system like you've done. You go from SR1 up to SR3 and they used to have SRAs yeah. and so on. And it, comparatively, it's quite affordable. And, and anyway, that's what we did with him. And it was such an effective ladder. And as I say, from first track day ever in anything to Le Mans debut in, the, in four years and then race win, uh, class win at Le Mans just a couple of years after that. It's quite amazing what you can do. And we were not out doing three days a week. You know, I remember coming back from the 24 hours where we were just visiting just as spectators. And, and he said, look, I, I didn't realize there's these, this sort of amateur driver element to the Le Mans 24 hours. You know, what other world-class sporting event invites yeah. amateurs in and they can participate alongside in the same event as, you know, past Formula One world champions and multiple winners of Le Mans. You know, we've, we've, we thought about, it, we thought maybe the London marathon is some, is an event yeah. that you can yeah. participate or the Tour de France, something like that. You can be an amateur and take part alongside, you know, the, the great professionals of that sport. And he just sort of said, I, I, I think I'm a bit younger and probably a, fair bit fitter than some of those amateur drivers <laughs> that I saw. What, what would it take to do this, Sam? And we talked about it. He had a few track days under his belt at that time. And I sort of said, well, it's going to take a real long-term commitment and you're going to have to really step up in terms of your time commitment to this because the rest of it is fine. I've no doubt that we can get you there driving yeah. wise. That's fine. It's going to cost a lot of money and it's going to take a reasonable amount of time and when I thought about it, I thought, do you know what? 
if you just did one day a week on average, 50 days That's a, a year, it's a lot. It's not ridiculous. If you factor in, when you start racing and you go off for three days, four day weekends, whatever yeah, yeah. it is, suddenly your calendar has a chance to breathe if you're trying to tether your program to that one day a week average. Yeah. And it wasn't that bad, actually. Go and do two days back to back here and there. Yeah, yeah. It, four it days, starts four, to work. days a month isn't, when you look at it in terms of a race weekend, actually yeah. looks a lot more sensible. Exactly. So we, and by the way, it doesn't have to be at the wheel of something yeah. like a radical anything on four wheels. We can be in a road car on a track day or yeah. going around an airfield. We can go I'll karting. Exactly. You can use a sim, whatever, but you've got to do a day a week and you're probably going to be doing that for five years. And the costs, you know, the budget's got lots of zeros on it. <laughs> and da, da, da. But he went, cool. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. And, and that was the moment where it was green lit. And as I say, you blink five years passes and you're a class winner at Le Mans. It's like, so Whoa. cool. There are, there are no sports other than that I can think of other than motor racing where you can take someone who is a full on amateur yeah. and put them in a professional or at least even get them. You're getting them really close to a professional yeah. in terms of time, lap time by the end of that. Yeah. I like really close, maybe not consistently all the time or conditions, any car, yeah. but in their chosen car, there's no other sport where you can get that good, I don't think. But also, I don't think in another sport, the amateur's performance has such an impact. Because, of course, remember, at yeah. Le Mans, all the pros are within a tenth or two of each other. Take anyone you like. They're, yeah. they're like light bulbs. You plug them in and you take them out and you swap for another one. And the amateur, meanwhile, in LMP2 or in GTE AM, which are the two classes that that are regulated in such a way yeah. as to welcome and, and appeal to amateur drivers, they make the difference. The pace of an amateur can vary by several seconds a lap. The racecraft of an amateur can vary enormously to the point where some lose fistfuls of lap time because they can't scythe their way through the traffic very efficiently. It also can mean doom, you know, if they, if they get tripped up in traffic or drop the car when they're tired or whatever it is and they end up crashing out of the race. Whereas a capable amateur that's adequately prepared and can arrive with sufficient competence that they feel confident when they're yeah. racing, that changes everything. And if you can achieve that, you're leaps and bounds above the, the, the rich guy that just writes a check for his seat because that almost always ends with tears. What is the general LMP2 um, level like now very high it varies so lmp2 is it's a little it's evolved into such a competitive category uh that basically the aim of every team is to find what's called a fake silver so the rules so basically the fia has this driver rating system a bit like a seeding system where they rank or grade all drivers from around the world that enter this sort of international level of motorsport. And you can be platinum if you are, let's say, an ex-Formula One driver or a champion in something and so on. You can be gold if you have driven for a factory team or you've achieved a certain level of success on the international stage. You can be silver if you are, let's say, under 30, I think, Maybe that rule I've just made up, I can't remember. But you're basically a young, someone someone like Ollie, for example, you know, young guy, 
coaching at the weekends, coaching in the weekdays, whatever, making his living out of being, yeah, a professional driver, but not being paid necessarily mm. by a team to race. Um, and we were all like that for a certain time, but, but they are, you know, aspiring single seater drivers who may be moonlight and sports car racing, whatever. They, they're the silvers, but the bronzes are the real amateurs, the business people with a day job and they're doing this as a hobby. And they often, not always, are the financial patron of the team that yeah. they drive for. And they will recruit a coach to be one of the co-drivers. But in LMP2, you don't have to have a bronze, but you do have to have a silver. And there's a lot of very capable, experienced, reasonably successful amateurs that have easily reached and are graded as silvers. But if it's, let's say, a 55-year-old guy with a day job, and this is a hobby he's been doing for, for a long time, he's become pretty good at it, but he's maybe not got that last second, that last two seconds of pace. But in LMP2, it's so close that you need that. So the team's always looking for this like fake silver who is, for all intents and purposes, a pro, but who never quite had that progression up the motorsport ladder, that the, the luck, the cards didn't fall in their favor. They didn't land that factory seat. They didn't make it up to F1. They ran out of sponsorship money along the They're way, whatever. whatever yeah. And um, they lay a little bit under the radar. They're still graded silver, but they have every tenth of pace that a platinum or a gold has. My brother's a perfect example yeah. of this. And they're the guys that as long as the funding is in place and the team doesn't need the silver driver to fund the whole program, then that's when these, the, the younger sort of fake silvers, as it were, <laughs> become really attractive to the team. So and that's the ideal. If, if you are searching for a seat to be an unbelievably fast silver. Yeah. I, I have literally spent a fortune appealing the FIA's driver ratings every year for you know, 10 years or something to get downgraded from yeah. gold to a silver. I mean, when else does anyone want to be downgraded <laughs> in some kind of seeding system? And you have to spend a few hundred quid every time that you do it. I'm finally there now, yeah. but I'm old and gray and nobody it's wants me. Slow. <laughs> <laughs> Can you not just like go out and be slow for a bit? No, because you don't get downgraded based on pace. You get downgraded. You Results. only really get down... The downgrading thing doesn't really happen. The only automatic pre sort of determined downgrading that happens is based on age, I think. And that's, I think when you get to 50. 50 or something like that, yeah. So let's say someone like Jan Lammers, you know, XF1, long-term sports car guy and so on. He gets downgraded when he turns 50, even though he's still a, a superstar and can drive like a, a rocket ship. Yeah. But... um Otherwise, you've got to appeal for your downgrading, and that is not easy. <laughs> not easy. There's quite a lot of discretion in the system as well. But yeah, so the dream is to be an unbelievably fast silver and then have someone else pay for it all. Sure. Yeah. We, we are we're, we're deep into the podcast at the moment. Oh, my God. Okay, what are we on? 212 at the moment. This is, this is what I mean. I've spent all weekend thinking, how can I make my point <laughs> four times as long as it needs to be? And I'm sorry, that's, that's the mode good. of guest that you've got today. That's good. It's good. Um, I think we'll, we'll start to sort of wrap it up. Mm -hmm. So I normally end it with five questions. Hit me. What's your most memorable driving trip or journey? It can be a race as you're a racing driver. Good question. 
I reckon it has to be racing a DFV-powered Formula One car at Monaco in the Monaco Ooh. Historic. Because for me, that is the best circuit in the world. And that's quite a claim, I know, because when you start thinking about the Nürburgring and Le Mans mm. and all these other amazing places, and Monaco's not for everyone. You know, some would say, why is that your favourite circuit? It's a tight, twisty street circuit with no runoff. It's dangerous. It's not that fast. and so But I think that kind of misses the point. It's all about the sensation you get behind the wheel. And it feels so fast. And some of the corners actually really are fast. Um, but when you've got the Armco lining it, it's just You like, don't have those Whoa. track limit problems at Armco <laughs> that you see everywhere else. Yeah. If you breach track limits, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you breach track limits at Monaco, you're probably quite wet. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope you can swim. Do you have um, a favourite racing car you've driven or raced? That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that, that, that would be up there. So that was a 1977 Fittipaldi F5A, F4A. I can't remember. Awesome car. Emerson raced it, got a couple of championship points. So there's that sort of historical evocative mm. thrill of driving that car and to do it at Monaco. Basically anything with D- a DFE engine is something on another level the the experience the thrill you get from a dfe is actually it's a bit like having a bit like the f40 experience you know when the f40 engine is really on power on cam just in the sweet spot super responsive phenomenal noise incredible power delivery very tractable very usable dfe is quite similar except you're in something half the weight you know (laughs) with more horsepower it's like oh um, so even in what was in 1977, a real shed of a Formula One car, <laughs> you know, today in historic racing, it's awesome. Uh, I mean, we were a front runner, you know, it's, it's, it was great. And driving that around Monaco was just absolutely sensational. We, we used to go when, when I was a kid, when Ollie was a kid, it was kind of a trip down to Monaco to watch the Grand Prix and grandstand ticket, a hot dog and, and, you know, sit in the stands and, I loved it. So I've got this really special affection for the place. Mm. And um, it's the only circuit I've never driven that I never had to learn because I, I must have watched (laughs) thousands of onboard laps from F1, whatever over the years. I've been there as a spectator. However many times I've walked the circuit a million times. I had my first ever beer in the tip top (laughs) when I was whatever age, underage, still have the beer mat souvenir somewhere. You know, it's just such a special place. And, yeah, to go around there flat out in an F1 car is, for me, as good a driving experience as I can imagine exists on planet Earth. It sounds pretty great. Sounds pretty great to me. So your F40, <laughs> buy a historic F1, and you two can have, can the have experience. that experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Five car garage, unlimited value. Oh, man. A buddy of mine called Joe Berry's got a podcast called Five Car Garage and I had to do this recently and it was really hard and I think he was really unimpressed with my responses because <laughs> they were all Ferraris. And even though <laughs> he kind of gave me some parameters ish, he sort of said, well, obviously you need a practical daily driver in there and you need this, this, that and the other. I just, I just thought about it and I thought. Do you have to, you do you have to like, they have to be, they are your only cars. That's it. So if you need to get somewhere, you have to choose one of these five. So you probably do want a daily driver. You probably there, right? do. Well, I'll tell you what I, what I ended up. So not race cars or race cars? You can have race cars. Oh my God. We're going to be here another two hours. You've only got five. 
Ah, uh, well, look, the one thing I know is that an F40 is definitely in there. Okay. No questions. What color? Red. Fair. I'm afraid. Um, how did you end up with a blue F40? Uh, when I bought it, it was white. Yeah. And I thought, why Which is it rubbish? Oh, okay. I imagine it looks good. Um, uh, yeah, it why was, was it weird. white? Someone repainted it deliberately or was it one yes. of these funny cars that the went to the Sultan of originally, um, bought two, had one red, one with an LM body kit on it. Yeah. Uh, which was white. Oh. So I bought that car. We sent it back to Italy. It's now original ish, you know, as yeah. original as it can be. Yeah. Um, but painted blue. Cause I figured if you're going to, you're either going to buy a red one, but if you buy a not red one, then it's fair game. Well, it's something different. It's something special. I, it's, I, so, it's so much nice. Like I, I'm all for Ferraris being red. I just don't particularly like Rossa Corsa. And when, where my car lives most of the time is in a storage place. And there are four other F40s That's there. the thing. And yeah, you just it's like, really nice to have some, something nice a little bit a different. Yeah. And if you have an affinity for a color, I have this weird, inexplicable obsession with green cars. And it can... Tan interiors as well? Yeah, ideally. <laughs> ideally. Green works for tan, it works with cream. Works, works okay with black. I mean, I have a green Ferrari 456 with pillar box red interior and bright green carpets. Wow. Yeah, exactly. It's jazzy, but it's cool as hell. I think, I know a lot of people hate it and probably kind of, you know, have a little chunder when they see it, but uh, it was Rowan Atkinson's car. He, he specced it new. That was, you know, this is, you know, Mr. Bean's taste in, in car specking. I don't know, but I think it's cool. Uh, It looks terrible in photographs, but actually every time I get into it, I absolutely love it. I nearly changed the carpets. Mm to to red to at least match the seats yeah. and make the whole interior a bit more cohesive but i am so relieved that i didn't yeah and now i love it some people like my brother say it looks a bit like a christmas tree but um <laughs> he hasn't got taste what can i tell you that one there we go i i nearly did a i nearly changed the interior color and changing the interior color on f40 is very simple you just change the seats because there is no other color yeah but i was like mm, okay they're in the original fabric and all this stuff so i just did it and then actually now i quite like it because it's a bit yeah it's a bit jazzy and it's a bit different there is i mean i think i have pretty good taste in cars and colors but most people think i have appalling taste (laughs) in cars and colors and that is fair enough but i'm also getting quite obsessed with brown cars at the moment and i even thought i was really clever the other day when i i i posted and by the way these don't have to be fancy cars a little crappy old whatever it was rover something yeah. 1998 green green thing drove by the other day and i double took at wow. this car it caught my eye <laughs> that's absurd um and it's the same with brown i always love when you go somewhere car related in europe where was i recently i went to i went to pininfarina mm-hmm. for some for some filming stuff the other day and the number, you know, that is a chic a design house as they get. Yeah. The number of brown cars owned <laughs> by the staff and, and could be really basic. There yeah. was a little alpha estate, whatever it is. But brown. But brown. I was like, yes, I want brown cars when in my life. Porsche did it a couple of years ago. I can't remember what it was that came out. It might have been a Panamera. Or it might have been a 911. I would say maybe 991. Yeah. The first of that generation. And they, they threw in a brown. Yeah, nice. A lot of people were like, I admit, I looked at it and was like, I love it. It's got to be the right brown. 
it's like all colors. Yeah, it's easy, obviously, for that to go horribly wrong. But I think generally it's great. I thought I was being really clever the other day when I grabbed the Instagram uh, account. And chose your name. second car from the. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, we'll get back to that. Yeah, yeah no. I, uh, but I, I, I thought, oh look, let's set up Instagram. Bring Brown back, and then <laughs> someone sent me a link to like make Brown great again or something on Instagram, yeah. which has already got thousands oh, right, of Brown yeah. car posts. <laughs> that was the end of that idea. Uh, second car, five car garage, right? Um, what was on my list? So you got an F40. I've got an F40. You don't really need anything else. You need something practical. <sighs> okay, my practical car is also a Ferrari. This I'm happy to drive to the shops in, drive anywhere in, frankly. And that is a Ferrari. Either it's all the same car, just different iterations. Ferrari 400 or 412, or the earlier iteration of it, which is the 365 GT4 2 plus 2. So the boxy thing that nobody likes, okay. but I think super yeah. cool, late 70s, early 80s, 12-cylinder front engine. Just Google um, the Ferrari 365 GT4 2 plus 2. And this version of it oh, right. I okay, love. Yeah. Can I see it? Because there was one before that's... So yeah, it's the it's the angular one. The the one before that's nicknamed oh. the Queen Mary is not what I'm talking about. Dun, dun, let me see. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly that. Stunning. I love this really early version with the black lower half. That's the that's the original design, Pininfarina design before it got iterated, and it has these beautiful um, like rudged knockoff wheel nuts. And if you look at the rear tail like cluster, if you can get that on the pictures. It's only this version that has six rear lights, three on each okay. side. Uh, I think it's fantastic. No, that's the later. So when it when they move to four rear lights, by the way, I love that too. And I would like, that's the 400. And I'd like that in brown, please. With a brown with tan interior. It's like an American car from the back. Doesn't look good in red, I'll be honest. It's not the right. It's not the right color on this car. V twelve. Yeah, V twelve front engine two plus two. Cool, cool as hell. I just love it. Absolutely. It's. Do, do you remember Rain Man? The opening sequence of Rain Man. There's a black one, um, and also they made. I forget the song, but Daft Punk used one in a video. It's very nice. I well, think it's much da- dark blue one. with cream yeah, or tan cool. or brown with cream or something. Okay. Stunning. Yeah. Awesome. So that, that was number two. Um, Three slots left. You could have a race car that you would race, race maybe. Yeah. The race car would be definitely, I think the, the, what I think is the prettiest racing car ever created, which is that sort of, I'm going to forget the type number now. Uh, the sort of Mansell Prost era, 1990 Ferrari Grand Prix, uh, six, four, one slash two, I think. Just try, try Ferrari six, four, one slash two. It's year two of the same car when the bodywork just got a little more sculpted. There was just a little curvature added to the tip of the nose and the radiator inlets. It's a John Barnard design. Oh, yeah. Radiator inlets just had a little curvature added to them as well. And it's it's the classic Coke this, bottle shape. This Absolutely looks very stunning. similar to that car that was in, uh, you went and sat in it, Max's uh, place. Yes, and that is beautiful as well. That's slightly later. That's ninety four or five, I think. Right, that, yeah. by the way, is a phenomenal car. I don't know why that hasn't sold yet. You know, that's got a V twelve Ferrari engine. The last V twelve yeah. Ferrari Formula One car. 
if you go on YouTube and you Google that car and you see some of the, you know, excerpts of a Lacey driving it in the wet at Silverstone, it's like, uh, it, what, what happened to formula one? That was yes, unreal. epic. The noise was stunning and it had a very clean shape to it. So big fan of that car. I just think this is prettier. Yeah. And I had an awesome trip recently to this, little workshop in Italy, dusty industrial estate, dusty little workshop. And you go in and behind closed doors is all of this stuff. Dozens of F1 Ferraris from the past, you know, 20, 30 yeah. years. Just, you can't believe your eyes. And it's so, and it's all original as well because it's not really been released into the wild. It was all kind of gathered straight from the team back in period. And it's not had loads of money to restore everything. Da, da, da. So you've got the driver's names written like, you know, yeah, back of the seat, so cool. Nigel or don't know, steering <laughs> wheel, you know, like Jean or it's just oh, very cool. Awesome. Send shivers down your spine. Wicked things. Um, so, so I better quickly four? do my others. Got one more. I think I did three, but I'll quickly do my others. Um, what, F40, what that Ferrari. That Ferrari. Has he got yeah. two more? Look, I have a four, five, six for a reason. I just love it. I know it's not to everyone's taste. I think they're awesome. They were Ferrari's flagship car in the mid nineties. They're beautiful. Front engine V twelve Ferrari driving experience for very little money. I just think and they're aging gracefully. They're a nice under the radar Ferrari. I don't really want a load of attention when I'm driving down the road. Yeah. You know? So that can go on it. And then I suppose I better choose something half sensible. So, um, do you know, a friend of mine, a client of mine has just bought a very early Cobra, narrow body Cobra, road car. Freaking hell, that's pretty. That is stunning. To have something that elegant with all that grunt. Yeah, there's such like, oh, just, you know, early thing, <laughs> wire wheels, you know, and they are brutal to drive, but so much fun. I mean, the torque is ridiculous. You light the thing up in a straight line in any gear, you know, just awesome. So the idea of having something as pretty and elegant and early, you know, trundled to the pub on a summer's day, no roof on it. And then, you know, when you want to be a hooligan. Yeah, you go a bit mad. Yeah, so why don't we throw that in there? Yeah, there we go. Boom. Sweet. Right, next question. If you can only drive one car for the rest of your life. F40. F40, done. Sweet. It's, done. Got, it's great having people on the podcast that are slightly pushing up values. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had to go through a really rigorous interview process before being accepted as a guest on this podcast, yeah. just to confirm. I was going to have Ollie, but he wants an F50. Just to confirm, I love. Funny enough, actually, the F50 poses some problems to the F40 because... The engine. They are really good. And they are, yeah, the engine is epic. The shape is aging beautifully. It's getting better with age. It's yeah. not. It wasn't, I agree, in period, it was a bit, mm, not sure. But I think it's, I think it's a, a very good car. I think it's an unbelievably cool car. Yeah. I had a ridiculous day. One of my oldest mates, very generous with his cars. And he had, at the time, an F40, an F50 and a 288 GTO. And very kindly, yeah, we went for a, we went for a drive. He's the guy. I don't know if you've ever seen that incredible Chris Harris video of yep. an F40 yeah, and an yeah. F50. It's watched his, that a few times. Yeah, his cars. Anyone that's not seen it, YouTube, Chris Harris F40, F50, Angle C, yeah, phenomenal. Um, it was his cars, and we went out for a day in all three, and obviously jumped between the different cars. 
put the 288 to the side because that is a very special thing, but it doesn't compare driving-wise to the F40 and the F50. It's not even in the same conversation. Mm. F50 engine is mind-blowing. You know, naturally aspirated, will always be slightly favourable to a turbocharged car, I think. V12, F1-derived car, F1 block, uh, engine, F1 block, very good chassis. But the thing that let it down for me was the steering rack. The ratio was just a bit slow, whereas the F40 feels much more direct, much more connected. And that means that given the choice, the F40 just slightly comes out on top. But that was the only thing I could I could pick out that was yeah. the differentiator. There, I, it's still on my, I mean, there's a lot of cars on my list of cars I would like to drive, but F50 is quite up there. Yeah. Um, I still haven't driven a Carrera GT. Not that I expect to have driven in a Carrera GT, but yeah. that's up there in mind. F- F50 and Carrera GT are two that I would love and a Zonda. And actually, there's the, it's a long list, but, <laughs> but I, really, I can tell you're just getting going. Having though. driven the 250 short wheelbase the other day, yeah. I was like, okay, what's the next iteration of that sort of thing? You're like, hmm. some sort of Ferrari with a V12 in it. Some sort of Ferrari with a V12 in it as like a ludicrous daily proposition just sounds unreal. But some the the very phrase some sort of Ferrari with a V twelve in it full stop whatever that implies yeah. you can't go wrong I mean you can go wrong financially on them pretty yeah. aggressively yeah. but but from a driving experience even the bad ones are good yeah. you know because you forgive in the same way you have to with your F forty you know I don't know if you agree but I think the steering wheel position is terrible I've got a space from one. Have you? Interesting. Just pull it in closer to your yeah. chest. Two centimetres. It still comes up at a funny angle. It's a bit it's of a cart-like driving it's, position. It's knocked a bit forward, a bit cart-like. It's yeah. not perfect. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. It doesn't matter. You know, stick it. There's something epic and unrepeatable about a V12 anyway. You can't, you can't beat it. Ferrari's approach to a V12 is generally make them as high roving as possible, which is fabulous and makes them sound yep. oh, oh, just <laughs> ethereal. Um, and a Ferrari is a Ferrari. And often in many ways, Ferraris are crap, but we forgive all of that as soon as you drive down the road yep. because everything else more than makes up for it. And what we do is re- we redefine the word crap and instead <laughs> call it character. Yeah, exactly. And we forgive all sins. And and that was it. Driving that 250 the other day. God, what is life? Um, just, <laughs> I, I got out of it and was like, I don't care about anything else. Yeah. That engine is everything. Yeah. And that engine is, uh, that engine experience alone is better than any other car I've driven yeah. this year or whatever ish um well, there we go there we go but i know a man who knows a man that just may <laughs> be able to find you something that ticks those boxes ticks something <laughs> like that okay most undervalued car at the moment what should be worth more what is cheap what do you think can you give me some parameters yeah it's worth if you i went to buy it you think it's cheap could be a race car. So could be a ra- ra- no wonder your podcasts are so long. These <laughs> <laughs> wide open questions. Right, can you give me more parameters? Like, no, you- the whole point is it's open. Race so it could be a race car. Well, let me try to give you one from each then. Um, I think that in terms of collectible racing cars, what I consider to be young Formula One cars and young 
By that, I mean, let's say roughly 1990 through to the mid 2000s, okay. the V10 era. I think they are obscenely good value for money, given what they are, what they the are, materials yeah. used, the performance they create. Now, value is a difficult term because quite rightly, a lot of people will say, well, yeah, but what can I do with it? And, and my answer would be, drive the goddamn thing. You know, what more do you want to do? Just Where find a track. can you yeah. drive a single seater like that though? We just do it on a private track day. But the, no, to yeah. be to be fair and rational, I absolutely agree. If there are not a load of organised events, if there is not a historic racing series yeah. for young Formula One cars, which there isn't yet, then I totally get it. You know, is it good value actually? I, I think they are because I'm just obsessed by that era. It's the era I grew up watching and seeing where Formula One's going, I struggle to get quite so excited about the cars as they are these days, yeah. even though they're more impressive. Um, I just think, you know, for... It's moved a bit in the last couple of years, but, you know, for under half a million quid, you can have, you know, a Canon liveried camel liveried williams mm. grand prix winning formula one car naturally aspirated v10 that comes straight out of the factory and is spanned today by the same guys that spanned it in period and there's been no other owners in between it's in as new condition because no one other than the factory have looked yeah. after it and you can go with the factory on their williams heritage program to their own private track days and use it and have, you know, Karun Chandok or whoever come yeah. along and help you and so on. And you can feel a little bit a part of the Williams family. And when you go to visit your car in prep or before, you know, you go into Williams and okay, you go into a different door, but I think a more exciting door. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, let's put that into context, you know, a, a really average DFE Formula One car from the 70s that achieved very little is probably similar money now for mm. four or five hundred thousand, something like that. Yeah. Um, you'd, you know, you could easily spend 400 ish, maybe a bit less on a replica racing E type <laughs> with zero history, you know, and yet this is something that raced and potentially, you know, won a Grand Prix, maybe two. I just, I just, you know, and you can yeah, have that driving it does, experience. It seems like good value. cheap. It's half the price of your F40. I mean, yeah. it's find that phenomenal, really. Um, but and it's I, an F1 car. It's an F1 car. But I have this completely weird way of justifying these things. And I have these conversations over dinner and stuff all the time with, you know, driver coaching clients, whatever. And they vehemently, vehemently disagree with me because they know the, the, the actual important fact, which I'm all too quick to ignore, which is, they'll probably just use it once a year. Most. Yeah. Now for me, that's still value. And if I could <laughs> afford it, I would have 10 of them. Um, but maybe fortunately I can't. Yeah. There's a lot to be said as soon as new categories get opened up at these events and uh, a new class becomes available, whether it's like two liter cup, yeah. you can race a 65, nine eleven. In the prices of those cars went through the roof yeah. over two years Yeah, because you can now use them for this yep. and people with different budgets have come in and gone, I want that fifth car mm -hmm. at my weekend mm -hmm. that I've flown in on my jet yep. and they've got budget for that. But yeah, there's definitely periods of race cars 
Yeah. yeah but they are all, they are all, when you compare them, p- people look at road, uh, newer race cars and go, and I, I myself do it, where you go, there's not very many of them. Mm-hmm. Might be 20 of this car, mm-hmm. five with like decent history or whatever. And it's, there's a road version of it that is a similar sort of price of which there are a thousand of. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, how, how does that work? Surely that should be worth tons more. But the road car, you can drive every single day and there are six billion people on the planet that could potentially use it. Yeah, and that, and that is a very fair consideration. I totally get that. But you only need 28 who want one if there's mm. 26. <laughs> and then you've got prices going up. Yeah, the, and a lot of people will say, you know, well, Sam, why are you all excited about Formula One cars? Because, you know, they built six tubs for each model. And, you know, each year that means, you know, there was however many cars, you know, 40, 50 cars a year built. It's not the grid of 24 Mm. or whatever that you think it is. I just don't look at it that way. It's about value for money in terms of performance and in terms of history and in terms of the environment that the car allows, like welcomes you into. One car that I do think is, it's already, don't get me wrong, a huge amount of money, about, you know, probably over a million quid now. And that's an Aston Martin DBR9 GT1 car. They only built 18 of those. That has, that has got that road car base. Mm. It's one of the most world's, world's most advi- admired brands. I just, and, and they achieved everything you could achieve with it on the racetrack. You know, it ticks all the boxes. And there are plenty of other cars in a historic race paddock that trade for similar amounts that don't tick any of those boxes. Yeah. So I sort of feel that with a long-term view, put it this way, if I had a million quid to chuck into something, I, I and if I could get my hands on a DVR9, I probably would. Yeah. Fair. Fair, right? Fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like this. I normally have had several pints by the time I'm having this conversation. <laughs> Well, at the very beginning, you were like, oh, should we have some drinks? I'm like, well, no, because it's the afternoon. <laughs> but that was two hours, Hang 40 on. minutes Don't ago. make me sound like a big alky. I didn't say, shall we? I just said, is the kind of podcast yeah, yeah, you okay, do you one asked, that's fueled by whiskey? Is this what we do? <laughs> and I was like, well, we don't generally, but maybe at some point in time. Right, final question. Okay. What's the most interesting car to you at the moment? You are so broad with your questions. Wow. The most interesting car to me at the moment. What is the most interesting car? Again, road car, race car, doesn't matter. Whatever, whatever. Wow. Old or new, doesn't matter. It's the most interesting. At the forefront of your mind. Oh, man. I wish you'd have given me a heads up on these. So, okay, let's think about it. Listen to another podcast, you would have heard them. Maybe I didn't make it to the questions. Most people didn't. <laughs> Most people have not, which makes them better. Right, they're right, not right. Prepped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. Most interesting car at the moment. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm kind of fascinated. By, I can't even remember the company name. Who's this guy that's done this sort of 3D printed car recently? The, the super Singer. Yes. Or Singer. I find that quite amazing because machines can create componentry that we couldn't even dream yes. of. Yes, uh, the iterative design, I think is probably the bit you're talking about, where they put in, you put in your parameters. 
right for stress points and yes. all the things and then it, you run it through a computer and it runs like 100 bazillion simulations yeah. and it comes out with a shape and it's the most insanely organic looking part yeah. you've ever seen and that then you print it got my attention i mean i'm really not that into like modern supercar yeah. stuff but that i think is amazing and the idea that just the implications of what that means for weight saving yes. and shapes and design could completely reinvent the concepts that we've become so accustomed to, you know, how often and how far back in, you know, car review history, do you have to go to find anything other than, and it's got, you know, coil over dampers yeah, and yeah. double wishbone suspension and the engine's been mounted. And it's like, yeah, you know, we thought that up a long time ago and we're still using it. So how soon until something different comes the, along? That is a really interesting company. It, it, aside from the aesthetic and whatever, if you like it or don't like it, it's a cool concept of a car, single seat. Well, it's two seats, but one in front of the other. Right. So you're looking out the middle and all that sort of stuff. Crazy tech, but it's a really serious company. It's not just like your, your random bunch of people saying we built a hypercar. Mm-hmm. They're like a massive engineering company that has a big car department yeah. as well. And they're building them with robots and all sorts of stuff. I, I had a chat with one of the guys, um, Jens, Jens Ferdrop. I don't right. know if you met him. No. Nope. Sort of worked at a few different places. Um, but the tech there, like they they design their own engine. Mm-hmm. They're like they're doing a lot of real serious engineering, mm-hmm. which other people just don't even. Most companies just don't even go down that route. Mm-hmm. Where so, I think it's going to be quite a cool thing. I think it's amazing. Just the idea that different production techniques now, that's creating different shapes. Oh, it's pretty awesome. You know, all the componentry that I saw, I saw this hub and it was like a work of art. You know, you yeah. put it on your desk. It's just stunning sculptural components that takes, that adds such an, a, a huge additional layer of intrigue and interest mm. to a car for me. And yeah, love it. If it turns out to be a good car that actually drives well, that's super interesting. And I, yeah, I'm just interested in seeing that tech come back over yeah. into everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All these cars that are too lardy nowadays. Yeah. Like, this oh. is the thing on Instagram. You just kind of get overwhelmed. I don't know. You maybe don't spend so much time on Instagram, but I'm annoyingly addicted to it, but you just get overwhelmed. It seems like beautiful photograph after beautiful photograph yeah. of the same stuff. Yeah. And it's, you get spoiled, right? You get totally. complacent. And it takes quite something to get your attention and not just scroll past mm. what actually in isolation is a phenomenal bit of kit, beautiful, incredible performance, whatever it is. But when they're all clustered together, it's a bit like going to a concourse or to an auction. I just yeah. think this is, I'm happy that cars are celebrated in these ways. That's, that's a nice thing, but a concourse lawn is just crammed full of phenomenal machinery but when they're all sat there together, yeah. they kind of detract from each other like, in a way. Oh, that's just an F1 GTR right. parked next to another F1 GTR, parked next to a 250 GTO, parked yeah. next to... You know. And you find yourself looking through them. You yeah. know, I went up to the Royal Artillery Concourse the other day in London, and mm. that's exactly... I had to have a bit of a word with myself. I was like, just slow down, Sam. You know, I was getting 
more excited to run into friends and say hi and catch up. You know, it's like, hang on, really, you know, look at what you just walked past. And by contrast, I saw a McLaren F1 go by on the motorway the other day. Oh, that's very cool. Wow. You know, kind of, you know, my wife grabbing the steering wheel because I was rubbernecking <laughs> so hard and just, you gotta, you gotta see these things out in the wild where they're meant to be and they're doing what they were designed to do, which is being at the very least driven yeah. and ideally driven hard and fast. And then they come alive and this sort of static lawn thing. It's okay. It's pretty vanilla. Go to your Peter Auto event where you see cars that are still on ridiculous, you know, V12 straight piped on the limit, all yeah. over the limit. Like that, that you can't go back to just a lawn anymore. This, after is, the thing, that. this is why I love racing at Goodwood in the revival. This is why I think the stands are so full and you get as many people at Goodwood as you do at the British Grand Prix mm. or sometimes more, I think. And it's because all of the grids, even the, the less fancy ones, and everyone talks about the TT and the $30 million worth of cars on the grid. Like, who cares? Go and watch the St. Mary's Trophies, the St. Mary's Trophy with, you know, a bunch of under two litre touring cars going door handle to door mm. handle, you know, four abreast into St. Mary's sometimes, you know, for lap after lap. And the cars are constantly drifting. The spectacle is just it just grabs you because it looks like everything is on the absolute edge. Well, they are, they're they all are. on the edge of adhesion, but it looks like like moments from doom. <laughs> it's super exciting. It's great fun. And to me, that's what it's all about. That's what I want to see a car doing. That's what I want to do with a car. And um, yeah, thank goodness for these great events. And I really hope that they can carry on. Yeah, totally. That's, that's what it's all about. Mm. I think that's a great point. To, to finally, finally <laughs> shut Sam up. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh my God, I'm just great. looking at the time at two hours, 46 yeah. minutes. It's nearly dinner time. And then um, if anyone has managed to listen this long, I thank you. They will. Some people will. And how can, for the people that have stayed to the end or like my mom or someone, <laughs> how can people find and you? And mine probably, yeah. Uh, the links are all below, below anyway. But yeah, yeah, they can find um, Instagram, maybe the easiest place at Hancock underscore Sam. My website, samhancock.com. Very easy. Um, Sweet. I think my handle's the same on Twitter as Instagram, at Hancock is. underscore Sam. Yeah. Well, just call me. My number's on the website. Oh, interesting choice. Sure. Why not? <laughs> cool. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Sweet. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.